has come to our family. You remember our venerable house? Opulent and imperial, gazing proudly from its stoic perch above the moor. You remember our venerable house? Opulent and imperial. It is a festering abomination. I beg you, return home, claim your birthright, and deliver our family from the ravenous clutching shadows. Of the darkest dungeon. Hey everybody, my name's Dave Jackson and this is Tales from the Backlog, a video games podcast where I bring in guests to talk about the games we play. I'm joined today by the Hamlet caretaker himself, host of the TV Nopes and House of House podcast, Andrew Taven. Hey dude. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, good to have you dude. It's good. Uh, we've been talking about doing this episode for a little while now, so glad we're finally getting a chance to do this. Yes, definitely. I feel bad. I I think I uh I I it might have been like November or October even that I was like, <laughs> yeah, I want to have I was actually surprised because I told you a few games. I think on Twitter you were asking, you sent out a call for some games. And I I responded with like I don't remember all the things I responded. I think I said like I feel like I said like Hollow Knight, Paradise Killer, right. Darkest Dungeon, something else. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I was like, "Wow, no one, no one jumped on Darkest Dungeon." That feels like a big get for me. That's exciting. Yeah. Well, like a little peek behind the curtain. Like you and I have chatted about Darkest Dungeon several times, even before that. So I was like, "Oh, dude, we could just talk about Darkest Dungeon. That that game rules." And yeah, yeah. Little uh, spoiler here: for as good as I think Darkest Dungeon is, it was kind of hard to find someone who's played it and like beaten it. You know. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because we actually, so I, uh, you know, uh, we met, uh, well, met, quote unquote, quotations right. met <laughs> in the uh, Slack members, Patreon members Slack for the uh, Duckfeed podcast network. Right. Um, including uh, Watch Out for Fireballs, which is a games club podcast, as uh, describes, and they covered... Um, darkest dungeon which was for me and i you know my uh incentive i'd heard good things and i was like yeah that's i i kind of like to go along if there's nothing else that i have uh or if there's something that they'll cover on watch out for fireballs a lot of times it kind of guides my uh decisions because then I can like listen along. I do the same thing with the blank check podcast that a friend of mine co-hosts and it's, they cover like movies and directors on like, if I'm ever on a plane, I'm like, is there a movie blank check covered that I didn't, you know, watch already? Like, Oh, old. I flew somewhere and they had old. And I was like, great. I will never ever have like decide to go watch old. And I would net, my wife would never want to watch old, you know, at like, it's like, oh, we're home. We want to watch a movie. Let's rent old. <laughs> let's watch old. Yeah. Yeah. Let's watch. Right uh, let's take a little trip to the beach that makes you old. <laughs> yeah. Nice little uh, night in. Yeah. Yeah. And so, night in. Uh, so actually, before we get started, I want to uh, give you a chance at the beginning of the show to tell uh, tell my audience what your two shows are about, because I think they both have uh, cool ideas that I'm into. 
Oh, thank you. Yes, I uh, I would be happy to do that. Um, so one of them is TV Nopes, and that is a podcast about bad media criticism using TV tropes pages that shouldn't exist as a jumping off point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Hey, podcast intros are hard to nail. It's tough to the thing that you say, and then you're like, what do I say again? Um, yeah. and that one, so it's, I have a guest on and it used to be bi-weekly. It's monthly now just cause, uh, for, cause I ended up doing a second one and blah, blah, blah. But, um, so we look at a TV tropes page, which for those who don't know, uh, I never know how widespread that is, but it's like a wiki of tropes in media, but it's all in very like Reddit nine gag 2012 speak. That's like big effing guns and like, yeah. <laughs> uh you know stuff like that and uh it's all written in a very obnoxious way and so i realized i was like wait is there like a tv tropes page for like schindler's list and there is and it's written in the same way that it'll be like boom headshot <laughs> like when the nazi goes up to that guy and does this uh or like kicking a puppy like when colonel whatever you know sends this girl to the concentration <laughs> camp you know he's a bad guy yeah um, <laughs> just like written like they're like you know early marvel film analysis or something and so uh yeah that's tv nopes and ops and house of house i co-host lenny burnham and he's uh uh writes about uh tv and stuff and has a great uh twitter presence also and that one is just uh we have a guest on it's a house rewatch podcast we're going through house md episode by episode and that comes out bi-weekly uh and you know we do other goofy fun stuff also like uh looking at different pictures of george costanza to decide if it's hotter than the previous picture of george costanza that's <laughs> a that's something we're gonna keep doing until we run out of images of george costanza and i i think uh <laughs> I think we've got a lot of time. I don't think we've hit peak Costanza pick yet. So I, I can't wait to see what the what is the image of peak Costanza. I, I wonder if yeah. it's not the one where he's posing on the couch for like that oil painting or whatever. Then I wonder what it could be. We we so we so far I think the best one is him in the uh, Ushanka hat that he gets the uh, the Soviet style like Ushanka yeah. <laughs> Russian cap that uh, Elaine like gave him but then she finds out it's thirteen thousand dollars and he left it at a now it's just sorry i'm turning it this into a seinfeld rewatch podcast <laughs> um which is not a bad idea either hey i'll hey i'll come back for that too check out <laughs> uh house of house tv nopes and seinfeld on netflix yeah yeah a plug for year two podcasts and the most popular sitcom of all time because it needs yeah. a plug. yeah <laughs> exactly have you seen this have you heard about this That's, yeah uh, jay leno <laughs> Just found out about Seinfeld somehow, yeah. even though I think they know each other. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, today on this episode, we're going to be talking about Darkest Dungeon, which is a turn-based dungeon crawler RPG developed by Red Hook Studios and published by Merge Games in 2016. Uh, I wrote down a little elevator pitch for Darkest Dungeon for anyone listening who has not uh, heard of it. Uh, I would say it is a deep turn-based combat in a Lovecraftian dungeon crawler. Sound right to you? Yes. Uh, I think you could you could probably toss in, like, comma, management elements. Right, yeah. Um, although I think that's almost... 
not as it's very it's interesting because i talk to people uh to certain games in the slack we're in where people because i think people tend to play along with whatever the network's covering mm-hmm. and i feel like certain games provoke like a lot of response and then some provoke none like i remember when they they covered uh uh sam and max and i was just trying to like pop in like every week to be like wow i don't really like sam and max it's kind of annoying and like no <laughs> one would say anything and then it'd be like well i guess no one else decide to pick this up to right play along but uh darkest dungeon had a lot and i had i got uh so yeah so i mean big big picture view um yeah it's very engaging combat it's very uh it's not you really can't do the the thing that is kind of killer in turn-based rpg combat where you just want to do the same thing over and over again. It's very situational, which is nice. There's a lot of variety in how you can play each class. Yeah, and we'll get into that when we get into the game proper and talk about kind of like the the way it works as an RPG and the way that the characters work and stuff like that. So um, before we get too heavy into Darkest Dungeon, uh, just real quick, um, it's actually been a couple months since the last time I played Darkest Dungeon, even though I refreshed a little bit uh, this week leading up to this recording. But uh, so what have you been playing uh, recently other than Darkest Dungeon? Yeah, well, I actually, I probably am a, a similar time frame as far as the last time I was hands-on. Uh, we, we we started talking about the episode right, right when I was coming towards like the last 25% of the game. And now right. it's been... Uh, a little bit, but um, I've been playing. Uh, so the main one right now is uh, Shin Megami Tensei Five, which okay. I don't know if you ever played a Shin Megami Tensei game or no. Okay, so a lot. I think more people in America. Uh, I mean, yeah, I know you're not so familiar. I've played like uh, Persona. I think it's a big kind of breakout spinoff. Yeah, I've never actually played a Persona. I watched Giant Bombs play through a Persona Four. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a fun if someone wants something on in the background that's kind of fun um but uh i played shin megami tensei 2 devil survivor record breaker on three well, i think it was originally for ds but on 3ds and then i played shin megami tensei 4 and now 5 i think is if it's it's one of those things it's almost tough to recommend because it's a very good Shin Megami Tensei game, which if someone wants that, I would say there might even be some overlap between people who might like Darkest Dungeon and who might like Shin Megami Tensei, just because they're both very much about taking a format, which is turn-based combat and, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of party-based turn-based combat, which can, like I said before, become very easily okay, well, you have one move you're going to spam in a row and everyone just uses the same most powerful move and maybe you heal occasionally, but it's really kind of rote and making it very precarious, very much you have to consider your moves, you have to consider your builds, you have to consider what you're doing. Uh, Because one thing I really like about it is battles often feel very much like you steamroll the enemy or they steamroll you, depending what you do. It doesn't really yeah. feel like it's a war of attrition. I mean, some of the bosses, like, are still going to be a little long. But even then, there's sort of a different way of, like, well, how are you going to 
you know, make it through that. Um, so I, the, the big difference probably is that, like, I know, I think some people aesthetically might have very different preferences since Darkest Dungeon is so, like you said, Lovecraft has this really cool kind of like paper cutout almost approach yeah. to the characters that I know not everyone loves, but I think really works for me. Whereas Shin Megami Tensei is like anime, anime, like, it does have, I will say, it's, it's not just sort of a tr- standard, like, trope thing. Like, it's got very cool, because the whole thing is it's, you're, like, recruiting and fighting demons, which are mythical creatures and gods from right. every lore. And, like, they, mm-hmm. they get, like, some deep cuts. Like, you'll have, like, oh, this is, like, a Filipino uh, <laughs> witch spirit. Yeah. And this is and it's this is the first mainline game where all of the demons are fully 3D rendered because oh, like cool. in Shimigami Tensei yeah. So like Shimigami Tensei 4 they were all uh like flat sprites. Um yeah. but for all of them the art design is very cool in the way that they kind of uh give all of the demons like their own very distinct personality they're all like very interesting you can uh negotiate to try and get demons on your team and the writing is i shared this on my twitter and uh that there's because i came across there's a line where just to give an example of the range of kind of demons in it yeah uh if you try and recruit mothman who you can run yeah. into, uh, which is based off, you know, so they'll have, like, Vishnu, but then they'll have, like, Mothman, the West Virginia cryptid from the 1960s. Right. <laughs> and he talks in SpongeBob font, like, with the alternating caps and lowercase letters. Yeah. And if you try and recruit him when your part, when your roster of demons is full, he's like, what are you trying to do? I don't have any room. You're like, there's no room for me. If I see you again, you better have room or the deal's off. And then the next time you run into one, he goes, oh, if it isn't the dumbass with too many friends, which <laughs> is anyway. So uh, the, the the reason I can't just like straight up recommend it, though, is because it is like you'll hit a boss and then the first run against a boss is very much like kind of the scouting, like, OK, what do I have to do? And then you have to spend like the next two or three hours crafting the right combination to fight this mm-hmm. boss. So I think for some people they might not like that. Um but yeah. I will say as much as it it doesn't to me at least it doesn't feel super grindy because there's there is some but there's not as much as you might think. It's more about when you're grinding, you're not just mindlessly trying to get like, well, I need to get five more levels because I need my attack to be at least 27 and it's only 20. Like mm-hmm. those stats are actually not nearly as important as what you're bringing like tools and ability wise. So it's more like I need to grind a couple levels because I need to fuse this demon, which will have this skill, which is going to make this surmountable. Or I need to get, you know, this, like, ability, which almost, which is very rarely just from getting more and more powerful. I'm sorry, I'm spending way too much time talking about this, I know. But, like, (laughs) the other thing is, people compare it to Pokemon, but it's weirdly 
sort of the opposite of Pokemon in a lot of ways because it's honestly more about catching them all in that Pokemon, you, like, get, like, six Pokemon and you, like, train them up, right? And you're like, okay, I have my team. This one, after... uh, So you can fuse demons together to make new ones and each demon only has about three moves at most that they learn from leveling up. Mm-hmm. And then once they do the amount of experience, like if you fused a demon at level 22, by the time it's at level 26, it's going to take more experience to level up than a new demon you fuse at level 27. So okay. you're gotcha. very much incentivized to always be kind of ABF, almost always be fusing <laughs> don't get like too attached to anyone because you you know you're not trying to train up you're not like well i gotta get my guys to grow five levels you're like no i gotta make new guys so it's right. anyway sorry so but that being said it's a very specific thing yeah and i could see people not always loving it i'll also i'll spend much less time because i spent so much time on that saying that i've also I've uh, been playing Professor Layton, which Watch Out Fireball is going to cover. I got that on mobile and Super Mario Brothers 3 mm-hmm. and Monster Train. Yeah. So, like, with uh, Shin Megami Tensei, I've heard lots and lots of people talking about this since it came out. And um, it, it very much seems like if this is your type of game, like, if this is your stuff, you're going to really enjoy this. And... It also, but it also seems like if this is your first Shin Megami Tensei game, this is probably the best one because it's the most modern, probably has the most quality of life. Um, I have, I did like that, you know, classic gamer thing where I bought Shin Megami Tensei 3 on the Switch and I have mm-hmm. it, I have Shin Megami Tensei 4 on the DS and I've just never touched them because uh, I have more games than I'll ever have time to play in yeah. my entire life. But <laughs> it does sound interesting. Um, I've also mentioned Monster Train on the podcast before uh, for people who like um, for people who like deck builder games. Uh, so glad to hear Monster Train get mentioned uh, one more time. That game rules. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I think there's something I'm realizing with me though, and I think it's a specific thing to me because I I appreciate it so much, and I love I really love the way it lets you break it open a lot of the times. Like you can make some really broken stuff. I think. I need, I think when it comes to like roguelikes, I need something that either, and I'm sure some people would say it isn't a roguelike. I know there's such specific things. I think I kind of need a different, I think I I like the, when I think about the ones, like I really liked uh, One Step from Eden, which is one that sort of was a little under people's radars, I think. Yeah, that's like the Mega Man Battle Network. Yeah. On crack looking thing. Yeah. Oh, it's real. It's that's a game that's straight <laughs> up like very difficult. When you first start playing, at least when I first started playing it, I was just like dying immediately and having no idea why. And then I you it sort of feels like you start climbing this like wall, this like straight up difficulty wall in front of you where at first mm-hmm. you don't have any idea what's happening and then it's very satisfying gradually getting to the point where you're like in tune with it and you're like yeah okay i'm locked in like you know you're seeing you're seeing the matrix now and you're like getting (laughs) to it and eventually getting a win and that's honestly something for me that i kind of think i didn't ever get past with monster train where 
I won my first run that it like shunts you into when you turn it on. Yeah. And I I'm not trying to like humble brag. Like I'm sure I think it's you know, that's like Ascension Zero, and I've like played a bunch yeah. of Slay of the Spire and other like card based stuff. So it's like I c I'm like I'm like, alright, I get I get what this is. Like, yeah, I, like I, I know I won, I won like my maybe my second or third run in monster train like it's not a it's not a super hard game it's it's way no. easier than slay the spire for example yeah. to win your first one yeah and it's um and i just i kind of never got past that which is interesting for me i think because uh i guess i kind of need like i think i either need more variety or i need to feel like i'm like getting further and further like i i don't love dead cells as much as some people do but that game had this real sense of like for me like oh wow i made it to like the second boss for the first time and i'm like seven hours in whereas like monster train it there was a feeling that was hard for me to get past and again it's a personal thing because yeah you know the main point of the game is like climbing the covenants which are like you know when you beat it you like get additional factors to work with and um and I just, I, that specific kind of game progression, for whatever reason, I think just doesn't connect with me as much as it does with other people. Um, where there was kind of a part of me that, you know, I got through it and I was like, oh, well, now I saw everything. Even yeah. though there are other games, like Into the Breach, I, lo- I put so much time into. And that's also one where, I mean, you kind of see everything probably a couple a few hours in like i mean i think i got my first into the breach run win on like my second go but that one the way that the progression worked i really liked where it's kind of challenging you to play in very different ways but kind of at your own uh your own choice and then like sorry this won't turn it i'll won't turn this into uh just me giving thumbs up or thumbs down to every rogue like I played, but <laughs> but then I think I think of like Hades that I got like really like hooked into, but then I looked back and I was like, I don't feel like I got anything from this. Like I I think that was the one where I'm like, where again I think I run to this thing where I'm like, there's like no variety run to run, like right. there's yeah. some variety in what you do, but you're like like I look back at Hades at some point and I put tons of hours into it. I mean I put so much time into Hades and you know I be I got through like the um you know the main story and then kept playing a little afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think looking back I was like there are four areas and I hate half of them. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty fair. Uh we did our episode on Hades on this show um and we yeah, we kind of came to the same conclusion at the end. Like, it was a lot of fun to play, uh, but I don't like the last two areas uh, of the game at all. And um, But Hades was one of the roguelikes that I could actually keep playing and, like, stay interested in because the story kept me going. Um, and that type of roguelike, like, I have this thing when I play roguelikes where once I finish it one time, my brain is finished with that game forever. Uh, like yeah. I, I couldn't even go back to try to get the real ending in Hades because I beat it once and I saw the credits and I was like, oh, okay, good job, Dave. Next game. Let's go. Uh, so like the same kind of thing happened in Monster Train where I beat it my second or third try and I was like, oh, okay, I've I've seen what this game is, even though, you know, I haven't seen 
the higher levels of strategy you have to do. And I'm kind of like curious, like as we start to talk about Darkest Dungeon, um, Darkest Dungeon 2 is going to go to more of that like shorter campaign type thing. And I'm kind of worried that like after I beat it one time, I'm going to repeat this thing where my brain moves on. Yeah. No, I actually... Yeah, I actually, I know exactly what you mean, and that's a good, uh, that's a very good segue onto topic, uh, to, to rein, to rein me in a little, um, <laughs> you know, Darkest Dungeon, it does kind of remind me of Shin Megami Tensei 5, no, I'm gonna do. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's get into, uh, Darkest Dungeon proper, and we're gonna take a little yes. break here, listen to some, uh, Darkest Dungeon music, which I enjoy quite a bit. Ooh. Yes, very good. And then we will get into it. That was a good tunes. Glad you picked that. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to get into Darkest Dungeon and we are going to avoid spoilers, um, though this game is not like a traditional like, you know, well, there are story moments that are spoilable. So we'll definitely save those. But uh, we're going to save uh, specific experiences with some of the bosses and the levels until the end. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit of strategy with the characters uh, before the spoiler wall. Uh, just to, because I want to show everybody who's listening um, and is not going to listen past the spoiler wall, I want to show everybody how cool these characters are and how uh, diverse and um, adaptable some of them can be. So we are going to do that before the spoiler wall. So we're going to get started uh, as we do on each episode with our personal histories with Darkest Dungeon. Um, when did we play it? What got us interested in playing? So uh, we will start with you, Andrew. You're the guest. You go first. So, what was like the first thing that made you want to play Darkest Dungeon? Yeah. So uh, it was like I said. So watch out for fireballs. Uh, the podcast was covering it, and I was like, okay, this is a a chance to experience this game. I think I also it was on sale. So the complete collection. So all the DLC was on sale on switch for half off of everything yeah and i think it so it was something like 16 bucks for the whole package which is like a really good uh value for that Mm -hmm. um and i started i'm trying to remember what i was playing before i started i think that might have been paradise killer or it might have been part-time ufo i forget exactly what i was playing before i started playing it but it was definitely i remember it being like okay i'm like locked into this like sometimes you get into i feel like some games i have and they sort of feel like i i I, i'm different than it's funny you know this is tales from the backlog so i know you've got you've got a big backlog uh i do (laughs) accumulated i'm not the same way i very much i might put off something for some time but i'll get to it you know, if I buy something on sale or whatever, but I, 
even if I end up piling a few things on top, I end up working back kind of as quick as I can. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty much like uh, one game in, one game out, sometimes two games in, and then work down to yeah. back what it was. Um, and and But that being said, sometimes I do start playing something and it'll feel like a little bit of a chore I almost have to get through. And I'm like, all right, well, let's let's finish this up. Like when I went back to play Super Mario Bros. 3 recently, because Watch Out Fireball was covered, and it was really like, I'm glad I was doing Nintendo Switch Online because I had save states and stuff, because I probably also didn't help if I stopped playing Shin Megami Tensei for a few days to get through it. But I was like, I just want to, I want to be done with this. I don't think this holds up for me. Uh, and I, um, but Darkest Dungeon, I was, like, locked in. It was, like, the kind of thing where it's, like, I'm mm-hmm. gonna... Some games, I get locked into them, and then it's, like, all right, well, I'm gonna, you know, when when do I have more opportunity to play this, right? Like, oh, you know, my wife went to the bathroom, like, all right, looks like, you know, five minutes of Darkest Dungeon. Like, my wife's <laughs> on the phone with her mom, like, all right, another ten minutes of Darkest Dungeon, where it'll be, like, I just want to play it whenever I can. Yeah. Um, and that was definitely kind of my experience. And I probably put in, you said in, you have in the notes, you put in like 67 hours. I in, yeah. I forgot to double check. That's probably around yeah, where mine is. It's a long game. And like, that's, yeah. that's something that anyone listening to the show hasn't played it should know. If you actually do want to beat Darkest Dungeon, it's a long game. And I would say comfortably 60 plus hours uh, to beat it. Yeah. Um, but, I'm kind of the same way as you. Uh, I got, well, first it was, it was given away for free on Epic. So I, I Mm -hmm. got it and I played a few runs of it and I was like, this is cool, but I'm not like in the mood for this kind of thing right now. And then like a year later, watch out for fireballs episode was coming up and I was like, you know what? I enjoyed darkest dungeon and I quit playing now. Let's, uh, let's get it back. And so I bought it on switch too. Um, the control scheme on switch is really fucking weird and it, took a while to get used to like you're using the shoulder buttons in ways like to navigate menus that most games don't do um anyway i don't want to get too deep on the control the big (laughs) i won't yeah no we don't have to get super into it but the the big one for me is it's the way that you equip trinkets which are little things that you get uh you kind of have a big pile of trinkets and each of your characters can take two trinkets into a dungeon Mm -hmm. and to equip trinkets you have to like in the proper order, like press the button to open up your character menu and then press the button to open up the trinket menu and then put the trinket on. It's like, yeah. it's in, it's done in a way where I just, I don't know if they were like crunched for time when they were converting it and like they couldn't fully play test that or if they were just like, I don't know what it is. Because it's mostly... I think it's a very good game for Switch to be able to have portably. It's a very yeah. good game to have portably. And it's it's turn-based. So it's it's ne- you're never like, oh, man, I messed up. Like, I can't... I forgot the... Like, you're never, like, worried that you have that pressure. But you just kind of have to know, like, the controls will be weird. And they you have weird. to just sort of be fine with it. I mean you can use touchscreen I think if you want to get fingerprints all over your switch but I yeah, don't I've like doing that. Yeah, I said this I've said this before but I never ever want to touch my switch's screen. Absolutely no. not. Um 
Yeah, it, the controls, this was definitely made with PC in mind. And then later they were like, okay, we have uh, extra money or something like that. So we're going to port this to consoles. Uh, has anyone used a controller before? That's kind of how it feels. <laughs> like, yeah. But um, anyway, it it took me, you know, five-ish hours to really get used to it. But then I got used to it. You know, human brains, we can handle stuff like this. Um, and I totally agree with you. Darkest Dungeon is a great game for quick uh, bursts because um, a, a typical run of Darkest Dungeon, you're, you're gearing up and you're going on these runs as we'll get into uh, a typical run lasts for about 25 minutes, 35 minutes, something like that for a whole run, uh, for me at least. So it was a good, um, I actually took my Switch to work and I played on my lunch break, just like one run on my lunch break every day. And it was a perfect game for that. So uh, yeah, 67 hours to beat it uh, for me. And I was playing on um, the Radiant difficulty mode, which we'll talk about later. If I had not, I assume it would be a lot longer but we'll get into that as we go yeah we'll get yeah we'll get into that the um the other thing about it i think for people going in knowing is it definitely it sort of seems to uh presume a knowledge of tabletop games that i don't have at all in that it the way the stats are expressed i kind of i i said in the uh i'm i'm a little notorious in the slack channel also for (laughs) Uh, giving my thoughts as I'm experiencing something, and then sometimes being told by, "Well, you're only just starting it." It's like, yeah, but I, I think one thing you you definitely adapt to it, even if you don't know. But like the way that I was always very, I was very confused at first because all the attack values are expressed in terms of a percent of your base attack. So like, if you had an attack that uh was stronger but might miss, then it's like present is like one 120 percent of attack and if you have an attack that like might blight the enemy which is this game's poison essentially uh then it'll say like minus 70 percent attack this percent blight chance so you're like for me at least i was looking at that and i was like is it telling me that like I, I like didn't I was like is it saying that this will lower the attack when I use it of like another it took me a bit to understand because I guess that's more standard kind of tabletop uh stuff you just and there's lots of information and some of it I still maintain uh after having uh you know uh is are the gestures target skills uh miswritten the greatest internet thread locked after uh, 30 hours of debate or whatever there's like some stuff a couple things not most of it but a couple that i maintain there are a couple typos in there that you just kind of have to which is not a huge deal in the scheme of things Mm -hmm. but for someone who is not used to this sort of notation it's kind of like there being a typo in a language you're learning and you're like more thrown off and then you're like oh okay um, but, but that's, you, you just get used to it. You just have to accept that you're going to learn to kind of read this language. And because you'll have already seen every character and all of their abilities by 
maybe a quarter of the way through, if even that, maybe even earlier, you mm-hmm. kind of get to, you, it's not really a problem at a certain point. So at a certain point, you're just like, well, I know all of these moves, so. Yeah, and that's that's something that I think is very cool. Like, the the combat is really good. We'll get into that in a second. Uh, but you, you spend so much time learning these characters' movesets, but that, like, halfway through the game, when the game actually does get really hard, uh, you should have a really good grasp on what your characters can do and how they can synergize with each other. And I think this is just a, just an excellent, excellent game um, as far as that goes. So yes, we'll get into combat in a second, but I want to give a little basic story setup here. Uh, so the, the way that Darkest Dungeon begins, uh, actually, I think it's when you turn the game on, like the opening cinematic before you even get to the main menu. Uh, you get a letter from your ancestor at like the family estate um asking you to come back and fix the uh huge mistake the um the joe bluth i've made a terrible mistake please come back please please come back and fix that that'd be great (laughs) yeah uh someone get so i was gonna say the uh, the game is narrated um by uh this guy named wayne june and i'm so i'm just imagining him with his incredible voice uh just saying i've made a horrible mistake uh, come back and save the family estate from the uh, the clutches of the darkest dungeon. Um, and the narrator gives these great uh, barks throughout the dungeons uh, as you interact with things, as you pick up treasure, as you hit enemies in combat, uh, and then also some lore notes throughout the story. A devastating blow to body and mind. The, the sound design in total, <laughs> I think I realized more and more just how important uh sound design is in games where it's almost one of the most important things i played also i recently uh played through um disco elysium for the first time and that Mm -hmm. jumped up to one of my top five easy and the the sound that makes when you lock in a choice and it does the little like yeah ding and you get and you're like nice like it locks in like you made you know the decision went off well with darkest dungeon all of the uh a dizzying blow just all of the stuff he says yeah all the sounds of criticals the sounds of heal everything sounds so good and you're just like you know, the music's like good too it is good music but even more so i think the sound design of everything is just yeah. perfect of the weapons hitting of everything you you mm-hmm. really it really does something to you where you're like yeah it's yeah, good it, it does and like the i i put down a to talk about the narrator in particular when we talk about like the way the game sounds and the story and stuff like that um actually you pro- you heard the narrator at the beginning of this episode, introducing the episode. So you guys know what his voice uh, sounds like. He's he's just so good. And all of his his lines repeat throughout the story or throughout the game. It's a long-ass game, and this is not like Hades where you don't have repeating dialogue. Uh, but he's so good, it doesn't matter. They're, they're just a pleasure to hear every time. So um, I, that's really the basic story setup. And until you get to... The Darkest Dungeon, uh, the main plot of the game is not really 
driving you. It's you're conquering these challenges. And you get lore notes about the bosses, and the lore notes are often really, really good, uh, too. Yeah. The main plot is not the focus of Darkest Dungeon, so I'm not going to focus on it, um, at, at least not before the spoiler wall. So Yeah, it's yeah. a real, like, uh, wiki plot game where if you want to, like, you can read about people's, like, speculation and stuff. I mean, the, the other than the very beginning, and then each boss, because each boss is, you face them three times total, yeah. and each one has a little three-part story that's very good and just kind of like a very good short story about how terrible uh the ancestor is and then you get to the end and then there's some more stuff there but it's very you're really not getting much other than that plot wise which is fine right yeah yeah it's it's not the driving factor of like someone's enjoyment of this game is not going to be how much they like the story their enjoyment of it is going to be how much they like the combat i think yes um and uh i so i've been thinking about this like actually since i played darkest dungeon i've been thinking about this and i think that this is a top three turn-based combat in a game that i've ever played i think like stacking up against all the final fantasy games uh persona divinity original sin uh, actually, I think my my top three ish would be like Persona Five, Divinity Original Sin Two, Darkest Dungeon, and Final Fantasy Ten as an honorable mention. Just off the top of my head, it's that good. The turn based combat's incredible in this game. I think I probably would have to put it up there also, just because I think the more I've uh... I guess I'm trying to think if I'd put like something like Slay the Spire up there. I like, you know, or even Monster Train. It's almost feel like different things. I like both of them. Those are almost more card based stuff. I think I'll say Shin Megami Tensei, Five Darkest Dungeon, and Oh, you know what? Maybe I'd give it to uh maybe my third one would be uh like Maru and Luigi Superstar Saga. I like that sort of that finds the right balance between um, engaging you in a way where, like, the smart thing about that was that every every enemy has attacks that kind of need to be dodged with different timing and different ways. So you're kind of yeah. like learning. There's almost, you know, it really is kind of the darkest dungeon of the uh, Mario series <laughs> when yeah. you think about it. If you had to pick one by default. Well, that game sound those games give you some like in it's turn based combat, but you're engaged moment to moment throughout the combat, and you're never just like you're never just like pressing A repeatedly until the battle's over, like you would in some Pokemon games or easy yeah. Final Fantasy encounters and stuff like that. A Darkest Dungeon also gives you that engagement, which is why I think it's so good. Um, the thing that gives you that engagement, I think, is that every battle in Darkest Dungeon requires your full attention. Uh, you like, you might not die against your first group of enemies in a particular uh, run, but if you don't pay attention and you don't take it seriously, it's going to like really handicap you for the rest of it. And like in the game, healing is kind of hard to come by unless you bring a specialized healer with you. Um, yeah, stress relief is 
hard to come by if you let if you especially if you let it get out of control uh and darkest dungeon has permadeath so like if you're really just not paying attention uh your characters will die forever uh sometimes you really just get it's like i have uh i mentioned it uh if we're if we're going to talk about a little later what who we had die on us but you can you can very much like have someone be even a little if you're playing radiant it lets you bring it's less strict it still has restrictions on how over leveled you can be to mm-hmm. go into a certain quest but it's a little less strict but that being said i mean you get some enemies and they'll just gang up on a guy get in some good hits and they're dead like that can just yeah. happen the ai does like i feel like the ai will single out somebody who's like on the edge and they'll just like repeatedly try to punish that one person or like if this there's a stress system in darkest dungeon uh, as well as your hp you have another kind of thing you have to manage called stress um so enemy attacks will give you stress as well as hurt you or you know one or the other and uh stress builds up to 100 and uh if you get to 100 you have to do a dice roll um basically whether your character will get an affliction which is a a horrible like kind of semi-permanent status effect it's permanent for the rest of the run unless you get super lucky with a um maybe a uh kind of cons- uh what are those things called curios they're little curios. Yeah, they're yeah. curios they're little interactables in the level yeah i think i yeah i think that's the that there might be um some of the campus so you get to for medium and long quests you get to camp partway through right. and heal up a little i think some of the camping skills also can remove uh those mortality debuffs right so i the afflictions and so like yeah like i was saying you're you'll have a character that has like some stress building up and this is one of the most famous things about darkest dungeon uh is this kind of stress system and like so if you have a character that's building up in stress the enemies that have stress dealing attacks will seemingly like identify that and gang up on that character so um you have you have this really interesting strategy where you have some enemies that deal HP damage, which is dangerous. Of course, we all know you don't want to, you don't want to have your characters die. Uh, But if you let stress get out of control, like if you don't take care of the stress dealers uh, on the enemy team, that can really tank your run and make it like, I finished several runs with afflictions, but like it, it 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 just sucks it like when you have an affliction it it takes away turns characters will refuse healing they'll stress out the other characters on yeah. your team it's a real poor get poorer situation where you're yeah. already probably in trouble and then you know you'll just have the character being like it's 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 funny to me just imagining them being like dude can you chill you're ruining this yeah. for everyone like someone's yeah, just exactly. ranting they make the other people stressed yeah, and there there's times like your your character will have an affliction and like you'll say, "Okay, like do this attack." And instead of attacking, they'll just like talk shit to one of your other teammates and it stresses out your other teammate. And you're like, "Dude, like yeah. not now." Yeah. Can yeah, can you do this later? You know you're all in trouble here. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be camping in a few rooms. Can you can you hash this out over the campfire yeah. and not like literally in the middle of a fight? Look, um, <laughs> do you want uh 
non would it help if you got some nondescript cans of food? Yeah. With this. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> so yeah, that's uh the stress system. Um and we should say also when your characters get to one hundred stress, you do this dice roll. If you're unsuccessful on the dice roll, you will get the affliction, which uh, causes all those problems we just talked about. There is a small chance, though, that your character will become virtuous, which uh, is like the opposite. It makes them into like a superhero, basically. Um, if you yeah. have a character go virtuous in a run, uh, they will carry your team basically through the dungeon. Um, they pretty much. Uh, just I do mean, the unless opposite. you actively fuck it up. Yeah, I mean, it depends what kind of situation you're in, but it's definitely. It's definitely a big boost, and it's nice. It kind of reminds me of um, in like Into the Breach. You have your grid defense, but you know you can't rely on that. Where there's a percentage chance of a building repelling a hit, and it sort of feels like that. Where you you can't plan except for one class, where the uh, the when they hit a hundred stress, they get a a. But it's a down, it's a buff with downsides, like they're, uh, the, the flagellant. They get, I forget exactly what it is, but they get a boost and some negatives. But otherwise, you really are, you really want to keep that stress down. Yeah. Um, and then if you happen to hit 100 and they get virtuous, it's like a nice little bonus. But you almost can never, you're almost never planning for that because it's i think it's something like 25 percent chance it's not like 50 50 might be yeah, less you should absolutely never plan like oh i'll just let stress get to 100 and then i'll get a virtuous roll like it's not it's not that reliable um, yeah the uh so like you you should be managing stress and uh as opposed to hit points which you have uh various ways to heal there's a couple of classes that are like healer classes, and then a couple other classes have some smaller healing moves. There's only, as far as I know, there's only a couple classes that have stress healing moves, and they're not like, they're not going to save your ass when you have 95 stress. They're not going to bring you down to zero. Um, so you, you have to, you have to really be on top of keeping stress low. Yeah. Uh, and we should say that this continues throughout the entire dungeon. You don't reset at yeah. zero stress at the end of a fight. It actually grows as you wander the dungeon, especially if yeah. it's darker. Their stress grows, and then some other stuff can happen that would up it. It's, I think I think there are only three characters who have a... There aren't that many healers, but there's maybe like four or five. I think there's only three characters who have stress-relieving moves, one of whom is reliable enough that it's the jester that's like that's actually pretty reliable stress healing where they have a move that'll reduce someone's stress like 10 to 13 points or something which is like a pretty good stress heal yeah. like if you if you're going into a dungeon where you think there's going to be a lot of stress um or one of the main dlc areas uh it's almost essential because you're you're going to be getting so much stress mm -hmm. um the other two are like one is the uh the crusader has a move that'll reduce like a couple stress. Yeah, reduce I think it's like maximum 5 or something like yeah. that. So like it's it's helpful if you have a free turn, but you you can't be like 
I'm just not going to worry about stress, and then the yeah. crusader is going to handle it. Like it's, it's, it's just not the, yeah. possible. Same with the uh, the houndmaster has a move that has like a chance of reducing stress and a chance of not doing anything. So it's like yeah. Jester is like the only one who's really at all reliable as a stress healer. Yeah, we'll talk about the characters uh, in a little bit. So there is the stress system. So you're constantly accumulating and managing stress. Uh, you can also reduce stress at campfires. Uh, yeah. As Andrew said, in longer missions, you can camp one or two times. And that's your chance to do like bulk stress healing. Uh, and that's what you should be doing if you have stress. You, you have to keep that under control. Uh, as far as hit points go, we mentioned permadeath. Um but this game has a kind of special system uh, called Death's Door, where when your characters get to zero HP, they don't die right away. They get to Death's Door. And then every time they take damage when they're on Death's Door, there's a percent chance that they will just die forever. So you can get like a, as far as I know, I, and correct me if I'm misremembering, you can get like a big attack that takes you all the way down to zero, but you're if you're not already on death's door, you won't just straight up die. Yes, which is a very in a in a game. It almost it feels like the sort of thing when people talk about you know uh, hardcore games and super difficult games. A lot of times, games have games that sort of have that reputation. I think Darkest Dungeon does to some degree. Yeah. will have sort of things that actually make them a lot more surmountable than it may seem. Like, it's not like, you know, the getting over it of, uh, you know, RPG turn-based combat or whatever. Like, the thing about the Death's Door is that you you never, you with, with a couple exceptions, because you could end up in a situation, like, if a character is blighted or bleeding, which are two damage over time uh status effect you can get mm -hmm. then it is possible that like let's say you have a bleed on you and then you get hit by something takes you to death's door and then as soon as your turn starts bleed activates before anything else yeah wait and then you lose that it dice does, right yeah yep yeah so then it is possible that you can end up dying before you have a chance to do anything yeah but the way it works means that you more often than not, at least in my experience, I had a chance to heal someone yeah. when they were on death's door without having to like, it wasn't like I was just out of nowhere, you know, getting, getting hammered and someone dying. And so we, we both said we played the game for 60 plus hours. Um, I had, I think between five and 10 characters die like permadeath die die um and i actually went back to my game and checked and i'm not sure if it's because i beat the game but the graveyard was empty so oh, spooky uh, yeah uh <laughs> we got some skeletons roaming around my hamlet yeah. um but there are events uh that happen throughout the game where you can like pick one character to revive and i don't know if this is only on radiant difficulty uh or not but I know I lost like between five and 10 characters. I revived several of them because I remember taking them back into my team. Um, but yeah, you will lose some characters throughout the game. Um, but it's 
when we say like this game has hard combat and permadeath, it's not like you're just losing characters left and right if you're uh, staying on tabs with the stress and all that stuff too. Yeah, and it is very much like the kind of game where I think the point... I'm not even sure if you could... I don't know if you could save scum it, but it's very much the kind of thing where you're just supposed to roll with that mm-hmm. and yeah you know there's always more people i think it even says there's always more people on the stagecoach there's a stagecoach that you can always check in the hamlet that'll have people coming in and um there's a lot of flexibility to the point where uh you it is certainly possible because there are these quirks that also i don't know how deep we're getting into that but in addition to their stats uh every character has a series of positive and negative quirks that yeah. are kind of randomly assigned and then they can gain new ones or lose ones and some of those especially the ones that are unique that only one character can have at once can be very good and have very big bonuses and it's definitely a bummer if you lose someone with one of those but even then there's really not a time i think where you lose someone and you're just like well they can never be replaced yeah like the it's it's interesting because little things like that can make a big difference but at the same time on a meta whole bird's eye view level no one character is gonna it's not like pokemon where you'd imagine you'd be like, I just lost my starter Blastoise. Like he was the guy I was using for everything. Like that's just there's no way to get through the game like that. Yeah, yeah. This is this is definitely a game where like you may lose your favorite character that you have, the one that's carried you through a few dungeons, but even if that happens, that's not really a big deal. Like you're gonna have to spend some time raising up a new character, uh, but that new character, if you pay attention to the quirks as they come on and you you spend your resources to get rid of the negative quirks that they accumulate, they're going to be just as good, if not better, than the one that you lost. So it's yeah. it's like, it sucks to lose your characters, but it's definitely not... I don't even think it's as punishing as, like, Fire Emblem is with, fi- oh, with permadeath. No. Definitely so, not. Cause, especially because you, you need to be... I mean, Fire Emblem, I straight up, when I'm playing Fire Emblem, I reset if I lose someone important. Like, I don't play... Which, I've... I've seen people say, and I think they might have said this on Watch Out for Fire, um, Watch Out for Fireballs. But I, I've definitely seen people say, "Well, what's the point of leaving Permadeath on in Fire Emblem if you're going to reset it nine times out of ten? Like it's right. more often that in Fire Emblem, if I have a character die, far more often am I going to reset than am I going to say, "All right, whatever, like that was fine." Um, at least for me in that instance, it's because essentially I'm playing the game in a way where the lose condition for a mission is anyone dies. And it asks me, actually, are you okay with keeping going without that person? Like, that's almost what it is in my head. It's like, if I lose someone, that's a game over. But the game then asks me, like, but are you cool losing, like, you know jeff the guy the nerdy (laughs) guy with glasses who loves to paint and i'm like yeah his stats aren't that good and his support conversations are boring i don't care about jeff i haven't been training him i can get rid of jeff and keep going um whereas this i mean it's uh 
because a big thing is if you're if you sort of are getting to the groove of the game there are ways in the hamlet to reduce stress faster but at least for me i almost found that it'd be and i know we'll get into this more because you 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 get resources to build up your hamlet your little town Mm -hmm. in between missions and for me at least it almost felt like a trap to try and invest too much into the stress relief stuff because if you put a lot of your resources into building up your barracks and allowing you to have more people at once then you have enough where you're like i can field like four teams and by the time that you know i'm circling around to team a again those guys are chilled out like they can go and so because you have to cycle through them and even if you fully upgraded everything and you were focusing on that and you're like i just want to run my four guys and I'm going to just try and stress heal them. Even then, they have to take a week off to go in one of the places. Yeah. So you pretty much always have to have at least an A squad and a B squad to deal with the stress you're going to get. So when you have someone important die, you're like, all right, well, I'm moving someone up from the minors. Like, yeah, someone's you got someone you've had because you have to be going on new quests every week. You can't just have four guys who you're relying on yep and uh this is just fyi for people listening i thought that afflictions were permanent when i first started so like when a character got an affliction i would just like release them um (laughs) out into the fucking wilderness surrounding this estate um but they're not <laughs> yeah, permanent. Uh, you, go on. You just chase one of the guys. Go on. Yeah. Get. You're yeah. crying tears with in your, your eyes holding with a With your obsessive ass. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, just to toss it. Chasing a leper into the woods. Go on now. No one wants yeah. you here no more. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Throwing water at him and shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's not the case. All you have to do, like, afflictions happen when stress reaches 100. All you have to do is let that character rest or like heal them in the hamlet until stress goes down to zero and the affliction will go away. So it's like (laughs) your character can just chill out in the hamlet for like three weeks. Then they go back to the team. They're like, ah, guys, I'm really sorry about what I said uh, during that last mission. I know it stressed everybody out. I promise that was the old me. I'm back. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I meditate. I'm I meditate. They yeah. come back and they're either like, look, I'm a, I'm a Zen Buddhist now. I've been meditating. Or they're like, look, I'm a raging <laughs> alcoholic. But either way, I'm better. Either way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's kind of like the, the stress and uh, HP systems. There's, again, two things you have to manage uh, throughout the dungeons. When you're actually in combat, um, there's a couple things that I think work together really well. Um to make this combat system really good. So the first thing is that uh, there are status effects and uh, positioning in uh, the battles. And something that Darkest Dungeon does that's cool is the bosses and the other characters, the enemies, play by the same rules that you do. So for both status effects, like this isn't Final Fantasy where you can't poison a boss for some reason. You can poison anything that has, you know, low enough resistances. You can put bleed on anything that has low enough resistances. There's also another status effect called stun, which does, it takes away their turn, which is like incredibly valuable to take away the enemy's turns in this game. And you might think like, I'm going to use my turn to take away their turn 
that's a wash, but that's not the case because you're avoiding damage and you're avoiding stress uh, by doing that. There are also, I, I don't think there are any, um, I don't think there are any instances where it's ever a total one for one because either a stun move is going to stun or have a chance at stunning multiple enemies or it's going to also do some damage so no matter what you're getting like thinking in terms of like i haven't actually played magic the gathering in forever but i still keep up on it you can almost think about the moves you're doing in terms of like um tempo and like utility where you're like you know you're still going to end up on top if you do some damage and you stun then they lose a turn but you got some damage in right you did something right um i got and uh i got people mad at me at one point because when i first started doing champion level dot quest which is the last one i kind of had five i did okay i ended up beating them i think but i had five runs in a row where i just got really bad luck missing attacks and i went into the slack and i was like i don't like downside rng i feel like there should just be something like it i don't like that you can totally just whiff a move like i i want there to be an option yeah that like 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 you can pick like i don't like that you can weigh the choices and go i'm gonna pick the more accurate but weaker move and have it still miss and then i i still and i know darkest dungeon too i haven't touched it yet i know it gets rid of missing which i'm kind of interested in how people respond to that because i like the like into the breach perfect knowledge thing um i will say i think i just got a few really i just got like terrible luck a while in a row and really bad rng because then it like smoothed out and i was like okay this is like a reasonable amount of missing i was just like okay this doesn't i don't i didn't like that but um i that's a good point bothered by that yeah that's a good point. Um, like your your moves can miss in this game, and I I think I mentioned this too when I was playing the game that like so like this is not new for RPGs. Uh, like I I made the comparison to Pokemon, where yeah. I feel like because like randomness there's there's videos about this where like randomness is not actually random, and when you see a percentage, the human brain's not very good at like understanding what it actually means. And so some games fudge those percentages to make you feel good or to be quote, you know, realistic. And so I kind of made the comparison where I feel like if you have a move in Pokemon that hits 85% of the time, that actually means it hits 100% of the time. Like I don't, I feel like Pokemon kind of fudges that in the player's favor. And it really only starts to make a difference when you get down like, 70 and below yeah pokemon i think does sort of does the thing i'm talking about and i think it's fine where it's like you know there's there are moves that are specifically like less likely to hit and are more powerful and that's a trade-off but otherwise unless you had something done to reduce your accuracy you're probably gonna hit yeah like you're almost yeah. Even with the moves that say they're 85% accurate, you're probably going to hit. Like, I just feel like you you don't miss those moves. But in Darkest Dungeon, 
you'll see a move that has 85% accuracy, and I feel like you miss, you actually do miss yeah. 15% of the time. And it feels worse because I think a lot of games don't represent those chances exactly the way they say, uh, or it's more sensitive in Darkest Dungeon because missing a move hurts more than it does in Pokemon. Yeah, and I definitely, I do think there's something about, like, the total whiff where I kind of wish that, I don't, I don't know, it's it's going to be interesting. Eventually when uh, Darkest Dungeon 2 is, like, out and comes to Switch and I'll try that and watch me like that aspect, but then not like that it doesn't have a uh, clear, you know, I maybe it does, but that doesn't have, like, a end st- end game state that you're building up to. Yeah, and... um so back to the status effects, um, we we got into accuracy, which is good. That's something you should know that um, you, all of your uh, all of your attacks have a chance to hit and a chance to miss. And I feel like it's more realistic instead of like your brain sees eighty five percent and you think, oh, I should hit every time eighty five percent. But in Darkest Dungeon, that's that's definitely not the case. You don't hit every time. Um, I mentioned stunning, which is good uh, because you take away an enemy's turn. Uh, but the game kind of uh, handles this in a cool way where once you stun an enemy, they get increased stun resistance the next turn. So you can't just stun, yeah, stun, stun the same down. enemy forever. Um, so you can do it to take away a turn and then the next turn stun a different enemy. That's perfectly good. Um, uh, there's another status effect called mark. Um, where you basically put a target on an enemy and it increases your accuracy and increases damage for some moves if those moves uh, synergize with that. Yeah, and it is fun to me at least uh, to go up against a boss with a Mark party where kind of everyone's got, everyone's named Mark um, and you've got, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the party of Marks and you've got um, both a bunch of people who can apply mark and then do uh and you know it's it's good about um it's it's good about not making the mistake that i think some games seem to where you don't feel like you're like well why didn't i just attack twice instead of using mark and then attacking because like right mark a if you have multiple characters who have abilities that are better off mark then you're uh it's the better off ted uh spinoff um (laughs) then you can you can hit uh you know with a few people in a row and also i think all of them are like 2.5 times the damage like it's it's and it tells you right there it's like 2.5 times if marked so you're like okay it is always going to be worth it minus the worry about accuracy whatever it's always going to be worth it to take a turn to mark and then attack with the mark attack instead of just attacking twice right. with the it's mark attack. The Pokemon thing, again, why would I use Tail Whip to yeah, lower exactly. an enemy's defense instead of just using Tackle twice? Um, and I think for a lot of those moves that are like better if an enemy is marked, I think the accuracy is higher too. So yeah, it's, like, yeah, it's definitely favorable to do that if that's part of your strategy. Um, yeah. So, like I said, the cool thing is that uh, enemies will do all of these status effects to you also. And uh, the cool thing is that 
unless an enemy is specifically like, um, you know, a skeleton is going to have very high bleed resist because they don't have any yeah. blood. Um, so if there's a reason for it, they'll be immune to statuses. But it's not like, hey, this is a boss, so that means you can't use status effects. Uh, you yeah, should no, use status good. effects yeah. on bosses. Uh, that's we'll We'll talk about some boss strategies in the spoiler section, but some of my strategies were like, really really heavily based on status effects uh for some of the bosses so yeah it's not like you know a lot of jrpgs where they're like you know oh you reached level eight here's some garbage and they hand you like a spell that has a chance of doing poison and then none of the bosses are susceptible to poison and every enemy would have died in two hits anyway so why are you doing this yeah yeah and so that's another feather in the cap of this uh, combat system and the other one is that on each side of the battle, your side and the enemy's side, there are four slots uh, for your character's uh, positions. And uh, your characters have different moves. We said earlier they have they each have seven moves. You can equip four, but each move is only usable in certain spots on the battlefield. Uh, so if you have uh, a melee, you know, just a regular sword hit type move, if you're in the back row, you can't use it just straight up. You cannot use it. Um, and the enemies follow this rule too. So there's another thing you can do that moves enemies around yeah. into different slots. And so if you know like this character, this enemy has a stress move that does a ton of stress, but they can only use it from the back row. If you can pull them out of the back row, they can't use it anymore. And it's just you have this opens up just like incredible strategy for trying to make the right team. And then if you know what the enemies do, um, fucking up the enemy strategies too. I think that's actually move might be one of the only statuses that's much more in your favor to consider, because I think you can pretty easily, if you know, you're going to be facing move, like uh, a couple of the bosses will move your people if you know you're going to be facing it, it's really easy to anticipate that and to bring people who either have a move they can use that's worthwhile from any row or mm-hmm. who have a way to move themselves. Um, whereas enemies are kind of screwed. They, they never don't have an option, but for the but pretty much every regular enemy either expects to be in the front or the back and if you manage to push them to the opposite one they'll like use often a low accuracy low damage move yeah and they don't really have flailing strike type move yeah they don't really have a good alternative so that's something where they don't really have a good way to counter it and you do you'll get into uh scenarios going through the dungeons where uh you may be ambushed by enemies uh at a campfire if you don't um yeah it's what it does when you get ambushed is it shuffles your party so you have carefully constructed like this character goes in the back this character goes in rank three these two are up at the front if that gets shuffled up you're in like full panic mode trying to get people back to their optimal positions um unless they have like you said a move that moves them two spots forward and does damage. And you can actually put together whole parties full of people who move around. Uh, Darkest Dungeon people call them dancing parties. 
Yeah. And they're a lot of fun, but you have to really know like this character should be here and then I'll use this move. They'll move up two spaces. I'll use this move, which pushes them back one and all the other characters are uh, synergized with that. And it's just, we've been talking about the combat system for a while because it's, there are so many things to consider and I think they blend together so well in this game. It's, it's just a blast to think about and strategize with all of these, uh, all of these things that you're, you know, considering yeah and i yeah and that's one where i you so you haven't mentioned it yet but you have torch which you have a resource right. you provision before each quest so you say how much food you want to bring and you got to bring food because your guys will get hungry plus it's a minor healing item and if you don't it's really bad if you don't have food and they get hungry they get like a huge hit to uh to stress and health and uh you got torches, which you can bring with you. There's also, there's other stuff like keys and stuff. I don't think, I don't know if you're planning to go like super in detail. I don't think it's just, you know, healing items, various things you can bring. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you have your torches. The torch is sort of a risk reward thing where the lower the torch is, the better your rewards, but the greater the chance that you'll be surprised by enemies, which was always kind of very counterintuitive to me because, I guess the idea is that you see them coming, but to me, that always seemed like, well, they would see <laughs> would... you coming. <laughs> right. Um, you're in these dark uh, passageways, like in these ruins or in a forest or something. You're going to stand out if you have a ton of torchlight. But... Yeah, but I, I, you know, so I, whatever. I, the main point is I always, I just always kept my torch high and well, uh, you know, high up so that I'd have a higher chance of surprising them because you get better rewards, but I think you kind of get to the point, the way the inventory system works is uh, you have a limited inventory space and you have to make concessions and you end yeah. up, I think vast majority of quests, I would get to the point anyway where I'm like, ugh, I gotta leave these, you know, jewels I kind of want. So I don't think I ever was like, oh, I wish I had more jewels I couldn't hold on to. So I always just kept the torch high. Yeah, and that's a, like, I guess it would be like an advanced level darkest dungeon thing um, where you're you're so comfortable with it that you're okay with going in low torchlight because you'll make more money uh, yeah. as a result of that. Uh, but you will set yourself up for ambushes and you'll get fewer um, surprise attacks on the enemies. Yeah. Uh, which getting a free turn in Darkest Dungeon is just a, it's an incredible. It's a huge um, boost. Yeah. Yeah. Boost. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that's about it for like the combat itself. Uh, though I do want to say um, at the end of each dungeon, uh, there's a boss. Uh, you're, or if you're on a boss mission, and that's yeah, your goal throughout each, the game. Yeah, yeah. There's each dungeon, each uh, area, each zone has two bosses uh, who you'll fight three times each. And there's like a little level that you're like, every time you complete a quest in a dungeon, the level you gain like dungeon experience sort of and the dungeon yeah. your level on that area can go up and so when you hit certain milestones it unlocks the next boss fight and you'll fight like you know uh 
the their name i mean these aren't actual ones but you'll go to like you know monster town and it's like <laughs> the silly vampire and like the little frankenstein and level two will be like the serious vampire and the medium yeah. frankenstein then level <laughs> three will be like yeah the angry vampire and the bigger frankenstein yeah um yeah and yes and... you're fighting the doctor i know <laughs> and uh yeah, so like you're you're building up to fighting these bosses. So like you go on these runs, um sometimes the runs have the the goal of like, you know, uh interact with these three things throughout the dungeon or um you know, collect uh something in the dungeon and bring it back. Yeah. Explore but, a certain number of rooms or yeah, fight or all the kill all battles. the enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Um but you will eventually have to fight these bosses and like, we'll talk a little bit about bosses specifically in the spoiler section. But, uh, I just want to say for people who are not going to listen to the spoiler section now, um, the bosses are really good. I can't really think yeah. of a boss that I think is bullshit in any way. I think the bosses are, uh, they're kind of like, they each have their own gimmick. We'll just say that they have their own, yeah, a specific thing that this boss does and on the lower levels you can kind of like out dps some of them and just kind of like be wary of their gimmick but on the higher levels you have to specifically plan for this boss's like special attack and if yeah. you don't it'll like fuck up your party royally uh it's and... that you know yeah because you come in and you're like all right you can probably make it through like you said, brute force, unless you somehow ended up with a party that's just antithetical yeah. to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then once you do, then you're like, okay, well, now I know when I go back, here's how I'm going to have a battle plan for that, which is like a cool yeah. feeling because with a, you can, for the most part, have a few different kinds of strategies you might want to pursue. A couple of them are a little more limited, in the case of like, well, this is the clear best option, but yeah, for the most part, you've got some different choices. And so like, um, just for example, one of the early bosses, uh, that you'll fight is a boss that hangs out in the back row of the battlefield and has these, uh, church pews in the other rows that are really hard to destroy. So you fight that boss once and you're like, okay, I have to bring people who can hit the back row, uh, of the battlefield. And so you, you beat him. And then you'll go up to like the next rank um, when you fight him in his second form and you'll remember, okay, I have to bring people that can hit the back row of the battlefield. Uh, it's going to be harder this time, but the same general strategy usually applies once you figure out what that boss can do. That doesn't mean it's not fun still because the boss will always introduce new things, uh, but I think the general strategy stays similar. Yeah good boss fights um and yeah. it's it's something i i've mentioned on this show several times uh lots of games really like struggle with boss fights like making them fun and challenging and not just like wars of attrition yeah these bosses have lots of hp but it's not ridiculous i mean it's not like 10 times the hp that your characters have this isn't you know fighting god in a jrpg that has 7 million HP or something like that. Yeah, even when... Well, I won't spoil anything, but... 
Yeah, there is a we wait for the spoiler section, but um, yeah, it it it, it feels like the right amount of challenge. Like you know, it's it's you get when you when you're you feel like you're like there's not a point where you're you know just going all right, I get it. Like come on, you know, you it wants you to execute a strategy and have it work for just long enough to show that you that it really worked and then yeah you're done yep and um it's you know if you have a great strategy you can absolutely melt down some of the boss's hp yeah like it's it's not going to force you to go through this long drawn out thing even though you know exactly what you should be doing um so another it's just they yeah it's just another thing where i'm like this combat system rules and the bosses are part of that Um, yeah they are not again it's not like a a final fantasy boss where you can't use the same strategies against the boss that you did against at literally every other enemy leading up to it these are just yeah they're all very specific it's it's almost a lot of times more um more of a problem sometimes getting to them fully intact yeah than it will be uh you know, once you get there, if you could somehow just fight them straight up, I think that would almost, that would definitely be a little too easy. Uh, cause yeah. at least for me, I think, well, we'll get into them. We'll get into the specifics of bosses. Yeah. But. Okay, cool. So, uh, let's listen to some more darkest dungeon music. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the characters and team building. back and see that was a good i I love that one (laughs) so the thing that i think is really cool about these characters is that i think that every there are 17 classes and i think there are 16 of them that are like excellent super useful uh in their own specific situations uh there's a couple that i think are useful in every situation uh and there's there's just one class that's like a reskin of another class yeah, um, and even then they they give them different trinkets because there are a few specific trinkets that only certain characters can use. And right, and, or now I'm doubting myself. I don't know if those trinkets are just reskins or if they're the no, trinkets they're, are actually different. I think they're they, different. they're different somehow, but they're not like they're not like super special, but they are different. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, I I think this is another thing that Darkest Dungeon does really well. They give you all these character classes, and I can tell you, like from my experience, looking at the list again, I, I really can't pick any that I think are bad. I think they're all really useful, especially in situations that are like tailor made for that character. Yeah, and I think when I hear um, when you, uh, I think I, I it always is surprising to me when I hear. Some people, it actually, it also sort of reminds me of, uh, just in that sense, Into the Breach, where I, I'm into the Breach, with, except with one exception, which I feel like there's one squad that everyone agrees kind of sucks. Uh, people will be like, wow, I loved X, but I couldn't figure out why. And you'll be like, really? Y gave me trouble, but X was like my go-to. 
Yeah. And I feel like you get that here a lot, which is good because it, it means that they clearly have done it in a way where it caters to different play styles so well that you don't even realize that it was doing that, right? Like, right. So because there are 17 character classes, uh, we're actually not going to go through them one by one. Uh, but I do want to do a quick like top three favorite characters uh, that you mm-hmm. have. So um, I'll go first. I'll give you a little bit of time to think. Uh, okay. My MVP throughout the entire game was the Vestal. Um, mm-hmm. The Vestal is your healing class, uh, basically. But your Vestal, like we said, they have different characters. And all the characters are useful in different situations. So the Vestal is like your true healer. But the Vestal can also stun enemies and do a little bit of damage. You know, if an enemy has four hit points left, the Vestal can kill it. Um, and, uh, we were talking about stress earlier. You also can relieve stress by doing critical hits. And so the Vestal turned into like a, you know, last ditch, like I have a free turn. They have a move that heals the whole party. And if you hit a critical, it will take some stress away too. Uh, so that was very cool. The Vestal was my MVP. Um, give me one of yours from your top three. Yeah, I mean, if I'm not going to also do the Vestal, uh, I'd say Highwayman is one of the first you get. And it's, it is, uh, it's yeah. one of the first two you get. And I think it's uh, kind of underrated because you sort of think in terms of like, all right, well, what is this like one of the Marios, right? Like that's not going to be anything special. But the Highwayman's got um, a couple moves that let him, the, b- the big two ones he gets... Uh, Duelist repost, or yeah, I think that's what it's called. Duelist Duelist advance. Duelist advance, sorry. It gives you repost, which means that uh, he will hit or attempt to strike back whenever he's attacked. And so uh, you can use duelist advance to move forwards one and attack and give repost on yourself. And then he has a move called point blank shot, which does a lot of damage and can knock people back uh and moves him back one so you can really alternate between duelists advance and point blank shot turn to turn and you can yeah. have two highwaymen which i think i did this in the darkest dungeon at one point who can alternate doing uh duelists or sorry can alternate just doing um point blank shot over and over again they switch places right. when you move someone always fills in your spot there's no like right. empty spaces um and even the other moves too there's like uh i think the only move i didn't any i think the the moves that he has one move that gets rid of stealth and stealth is something i don't think you mentioned where some enemies will have stealth where there'll be a couple turns where they can't be attacked unless they can't be targeted they can get hit by multi-hit attacks that happen to have them in range and I think that's one of the only sort of things that was that I almost never used unless I really knew there was going to be a stealth thing is the attacks that let you unstealth people because it's yeah, pretty I never uncommon used that either. Yeah, it's pretty uncommon. And even when you get it, normally it would just be a signal to me to be like, all right, well, I'm going to attack the non-stealth ones first because in two turns, the stealth person will be unstealth anyway. Right. Um, which probably isn't the most optimal play, but that those moves tend to have solo utilities. But other than that, he's got moves like he lets you bleed, 
which can be nice because, uh, like, the Warren, which is the area with all the pigmen, they're all super susceptible to bleed, so you can bring him to the Warren. Um, but you can also bring him um, to somewhere where bleed doesn't work because you can just use those other moves I was talking about. He's just a uh, real good go-to. And he feels like he has a pretty big uh, crit chance off a of stop. I yeah. feel like he, he crits pretty often, which is very valuable. if you Because if you get a crit, it does a bunch more damage and you get uh, stress relief. Right. Exactly. So the Highwayman's also in my top three, and I kind of started at the beginning of the game. I was like, because at the beginning, they give you a Crusader, which is like a knight character. They give you the Vestal, which we talked about, uh, the healer. They give you the Highwayman, and he's got a couple of pistols. So I was like, oh, okay, ranged attacker, sure. Um, And then they give you the Plague Doctor. Um, So I kind of thought like, oh, the Highwayman's a a ranged attacker, uh, I will just focus on ranged attacks with him, but it turns out his close range, the duelist advance, and then that point blank shot are some of the most powerful attacks uh, of any character. So yeah, agree. Also in my top three. Um, the other one in my top three is the Hellion, um, which mm. was kind of hard for me to figure out at the beginning um, because the Hellion has a move that stuns the first two rows, but also lowers her attack. And so I used that move a lot at the beginning, and then I was like, obviously not doing a ton of damage. Then I realized the Hellion has the single best move in the game for hitting the back row, mm-hmm. uh, which is where the stress healers hang out in the back row. Yeah. A lot of bosses hang out in the back row, especially later in the game. So the Hellion became like, if I'm going on a boss run, Hellion has to go so I can do as much damage to the back row as possible. So she is the third in my top three, Vestal, Hellion, Highwayman. Yeah, and I'll give it, so I'll give it to, um, I think, the Jester, actually, just to to switch things up. I feel like um, Jester is one, so he does the heal, the stress heals. He has a couple moves that buff your party also. Yeah. And he does uh he has two bleed moves. They're actually pretty good. Like you would sort of mm-hmm. think that uh he wouldn't necessarily be good at straight up attack, but he's probably along with the um the flagellant, who I also like a lot, who does a bunch of bleed stuff, probably one of the best bleed characters in the game. Because he has a move that can bleed the two in the middle row, or you can right. have a stronger attack to bleed one guy. And he does this thing, uh, this move called finale, where everything builds up your finale. All of his moves buff his finale. And the I sort of think it's like, you know, the galaxy brain meme where it's like one thing or the uh, where it's like one level of understanding and the galaxy brain and the meme gets more as that like right and normally it's like you think a but then you realize b but then you realize a actually but then you realize b and for me i think when you first see that you're like oh i'm gonna try and set up finale because that's what the jester is supposed to be i'm gonna be trying to always set up finale and you realize that doesn't work so then you're like actually finale is a trap that's for people who see that and they see that this buffs it that's to get you because his stress heal and his buffs are so good and, you know, you can still have a bleed attack if you want. I'm not going to waste one of my four or five, five, uh, five slots, four slots. Four. No, I can't believe it. 
four slots. Yeah, I'm not going to waste one of my four slots on finale. That's useless. And yeah. then I think at least for me, I realized, no, actually, so finale, you have to be in the front two rows and then it drops you to the back row, but it does damage that's built up uh, over time. You start to realize I don't have to set up the perfect finale. I don't have, like, it's nice against a boss if you can score a real big finale, but actually the trap is thinking you have to get the biggest finale possible when in a normal battle, things are almost going to be done by the time. If you actually manage to set that up and get him in position, yeah. things will be done. You start to realize, like, oh, actually, if I use, like, three moves to maybe do a bleed, buff someone, and de-stress someone, then I can use finale, and that's enough to take out a regular enemy and drop me back, and I'm actually using it in a way that impacts a regular battle. Even though mm-hmm. I didn't get the biggest one, it's okay. And then when you do fight a boss you can actually try and use it to its fullest potential. But even then, the way to avoid the trap is to not think that's your primary goal. That's always the secondary. Like, if I end up in position and I can use it, then neat. But, uh, you know, if not, that's okay too because he has so much utility. Um, And then, first pick a third one. Um, You know what? I like uh, Musketeer and Arbalist a lot, actually. I feel like... um, that's uh I, I think i saw people not liking them as much for some reason but they both they have a minor heal which can actually be very helpful because even a minor heal gets you off death's door which is a big deal so mm-hmm. uh and then plus they have mark they have uh an attack that lowers accuracy while doing damage in the back two rows and generally anything you can do that does damage and something else is a nice thing to be able to do. And they have a, a move that removes marks from your party, which yes. is, is very, Useful it has a very situation. niche like use <laughs> yeah. case, but in that one use case, it is like almost necessary. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. The, the jester, I, I straight up just did not use for the entire yeah. game until the darkest dungeon when stress uh, was like, there's one darkest dungeon mission in particular where it's like you have to you have to be on top of stress and then you have to be on top of stress some more. Uh, so the the jester really saved my ass in that one. Um, and I think I did fall in that trap of thinking the finale is like you know build up five or six turns building up to a finale. Um, so I did use the jester in the darkest dungeon. Uh, he has the little uh, darkest dungeon conquering torch next to him in the uh, the roster there. And then uh, the arbalest, uh, I always found like better in theory than it actually was for me, except for that mm-hmm. one use case. Um, but it is really awesome to be able to do uh, good damage to the back row. Uh, so. I, but I feel like whenever I was like going up against a boss and it was like, bring the arbalist so you can hit the back row, the arbalist would die. And oh. it, that happened to me at least twice. Like, I think I lost multiple arbalists throughout the game. It is a useful character. I just like didn't, maybe I just got shit luck with like, you know, what attacks the bosses did and stuff. Yeah. Except for, that, except for that one. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, there's also a trinket you get from one of the bosses. When you beat the boss for a third time, because you technically don't have to. I, I don't... I'm trying to think if you could... You could... I think it would... You could theoretically finish the game. Could you... I'm trying to think why couldn't you finish the game and never fight a basic boss? I mean, there would be no point in doing so, but... I don't like, think you have to. I think you can go in the darkest dungeon from the beginning, but you'll you'll never be able to level your characters up. But you could keep leveling them across Oh true other quests. The other It'd be a quests. boring way to play. I don't know why someone would do that. You're missing one of the coolest parts of the game. Right, yeah. But you don't I mean you definitely don't need to beat the final level of the bosses. Um I did because I feel like it's cool to do, and also you get uh, like one of you get a special trinket when you beat the level three version of each boss. Some of which, all of which, are very powerful. Sometimes in ways that aren't that useful, but right. the one you get from one of them gives you a huge uh, benefit if you're in the back row. And that just was like a um, it's tailor made for those yeah, arbalists exactly. and musketeers. Yeah, so. You have uh, your characters, and we we talked about you know maybe five classes here. There are seventeen. Once again, I want to reiterate: I think they're all excellent. Um, even though some of them have very specific use cases, those in those use cases they can be the MVP of a, of yeah. a particular boss fight. So um, you definitely, when you're playing this game, you do need to. Um, open up your barracks so that you can have as many characters as possible and then play around with all the classes because like just trust us they're all useful in some way yeah Uh, i I don't think there's yeah there's some classes that like they may seem useful in one way but they're actually useful in another way like the uh, crusader for example is like a knight character and so you may think like okay this is my dps person but the crusader is actually in my opinion best as just a kind of like jack of all trades support character for everybody instead of just like straight up dps all the time like you might think with a knight they have a big the the thing about them is they have a big bonus uh against undead so if you're in the ruins which is a lot of undead then they are disproportionately useful. The Vestal also has one melee attack, which has a big bonus against undead, but I never... You have to have her in row two, and that just feels like something someone would do to try it. I And maybe it works, because I definitely... I, I tried out a bunch of different strategies at least once in a lot of cases, but um, I don't think i uh i i don't think i even once assigned maybe maybe i did if it was automatically unlocked when i had one of the right. vestals but i like never used the vestals melee cuz yeah. you have to have them in row 2 why would your vestal be in row 2 exactly yeah what, you nuts? so yeah so you're you're thinking about and we said like we've talked about a couple use cases for some of the characters um I think each character has at least two uh, ways they they can be used in combat, like as part of a, a team building uh, strategy. So that's also part of your strategy is like 
you want to take this, uh, take the jester for example, and you want to say like, do I want to, do I want the jester to stress heal people all the time or most of the time, or do I want the jester to focus on uh, putting bleed on people? And that's what you want to, uh, you want to think about and kind of like get each character into a role and then they have other moves to support in another way if the situation is there. And that's part of your like uh, game loop um, when you're getting ready to go out on the missions. And we, we've actually talked about the missions throughout, uh, but for each mission, you, um, you provision, you buy your supplies for it, you set your how many torches you want to take and how much food you want to bring and stuff like that. You set your skills uh, on the characters, like we said, four combat skills, and it is useful to swap in and out different skills depending on what your goal is for that run and for that character. And then also uh, each character has camping skills that can give you uh, buffs when you camp, they can stress heal, they can um, uh, they can prevent ambushes during the camping, which is like super important. So there's all of these decisions you're making when you're going out into the dungeon, but then you're also making decisions in the Hamlet. So you have your uh, Hamlet, your kind of like home base, you come back to between every mission. Uh, You get to name your Hamlet. What did you name your Hamlet, Andrew? I named mine uh, the Tave Man Estate, because that's a nickname (laughs) that a friend of mine called me the Tave Man. So I... Right on. Uh, my Hamlet is named the Dojima Estate. Uh, part of my internet, uh, one of my internet handles on certain places, including my Twitch channel. Um, after, of course, the uh, the Dojima family from the Yakuza games. Uh, so the Dojima Estate was mine. And um, after each mission, you come back and you kind of have free time to spend resources and build up your uh, buildings in the Hamlet. What did you focus on uh, when you're spending those resources? So my big ones uh, were uh, wanted to get a good stable, like a good barrack size. So I had a big group of people I could rotate through. So I didn't have to worry too much about uh, people being stressed in between missions. Mm-hmm. Um the other big one I raced towards was whenever I could do uh, weapon and armor upgrades because that's your characters when they level up do not get any more attack or defense. So it's very important to be able to have better weapons and armor, which you have to pay for for each character, and you have to upgrade the blacksmith to get them there, and that's a massive boost. Um, and then the skills also. I want to unlock all the skills a lot of those i kind of just compulsively would upgrade every skill i was using even though i suspect that some of them probably weren't worth the gold i was putting into it but i kind of just didn't want to take the time and at some point you hit a point i think at least i did it seems like it's pretty typical to at least you hit a point maybe halfway through or maybe even a little later than that where uh gold is just immaterial you just you get to the point where at least for me i got to a point where i had hundreds of thousands of gold and that wasn't even a factor i mean it also helps i have uh i think this is dlc but i had it with all the dlc so i don't know what necessarily was but you get these districts 
um, that you can build. And they require, so upgrades and buildings need, uh, um, not curios. That's the stuff you interact with. You need, um, you need these other types of treasures. It's not artifacts. It's not artifacts? I don't think so. It's um, relics. No, it's, um, is, is it relics? Shoot. All right. Wait a second. I thought it was called artifacts. When you get those, you get the paintings, you get the, uh, um, you know, uh, I forget what the other ones are called, but yeah, those, and you, you get these heirlooms. treasures, heirlooms. Yeah, they're heirlooms. Right. You get the heirlooms as you're going through the uh, the dungeons, either as rewards for completing your quest or just you just find them uh, in the dungeon, and that's part of your inventory management that you mentioned earlier. Is like, hey, I really fucking I really need these these portraits uh, yeah. for the next upgrade I need, uh, but. In order to do that, I have to either throw away some money or I have to throw away some um, torches or some food or something like that. You're constantly, Antidote, hope. Yeah, yeah, constantly making those decisions. Um, yeah. For me in the Hamlet, I, like you, I focused on the blacksmith uh, upgrading the stagecoach so I could get as many new people as possible. Um, I also fully upgraded the thing where you can remove quirks or lock in good quirks yeah. um to make that cheaper because it gets really expensive. Uh but I yeah. We had the same idea for the the upgrading stuff. You can also upgrade the stress relief areas, but I think that's a waste of money because unless you need to take your characters out like every other week, uh you don't really need to spend money on that, I don't think. Yeah, and you get, I mean, one of the more benign quirks, bad quirks, is people will have one that doesn't let them do a certain uh, stress relief activity or requires them to only do a certain stress relief activity. So if you don't have a lot of slots open, that can turn into like a Professor Layton style, uh, you know, Mr. Z only drinks but doesn't smoke. Mr. S yeah. only goes <laughs> to the brothel but doesn't do this. How can you get them each to relieve their stress? Um, but at the end of the day, if you have a big enough roster, that's kind of moot. I mean, I even was not... It's very expensive to remove bad quirks. Um, and there's a couple other ways to get it. I there were I was pretty tolerant about the quirks I'd let people carry around, um, which yeah. I know is not how everyone plays, but I... There's just a couple bad quirks that are like... <clears throat> There's a couple bad quirks that are like emergencies, I think. Like, yeah, they're really, they're really. There's one quirk where someone will like, um, they'll decide that they want to be the one to interact with all the curios in the dungeons, and like, so they, when you interact with the curios in the dungeons, you often have to use an item on it to to remove any bad yeah. effects or to get you a good effect from it. But another character will decide, no, I'm doing it, and then they'll they'll fuck up the whole thing for everybody. So that quirk, you got to get rid of that one. But there's a lot where it's like, you know, you know, minus five to attack against beasts or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you're just, and like, I'm just like, yeah, I'll just live with that, you know? Yeah, or like even ones where it's like more stress. I mean, it's bad, but it's something you're managing anyway. So if you're like, oh, 10% more stress uh, against humans and you're gonna run into humans because every zone has some humans you fight and you're like all right but i'm already paying attention to stress so yeah it's something i'm factoring into a degree 
that was part of my trinket strategy too, because a lot yeah. of the good trinkets add stress. Um, but I'm also putting on trinkets that lower stress. And like you said, I'm I'm managing stress through the dungeon anyway. So if it's like this trinket uh, makes your gives you a huge boost to offense, but also twenty percent stress. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll handle that because battles will be over quicker. You know, yeah, stuff exactly. like that. So. Yeah, the, it's the, a lot of times if you're doing if you're if you're keeping yourself above water, a lot of times that's like the difference between returning to the hamlet with fifty versus sixty five stress, and that's pretty much yeah. the same thing in terms of how I'm going to react to it. So, right. So the I don't know the I I personally I don't like uh, city building. I don't like management sim style stuff. So I'm kind of glad that it's as simple as it is in Darkest Dungeon. Uh, I I think if someone was like, I really wish I could strategize more with my Hamlet or like be more creative or customize things more, um, I could see that being a criticism someone would have of Darkest Dungeon. I personally hate that kind of game for the most part, so I'm glad it's not more because that's not my focus. I don't want to spend, you know... 45 minutes doing hamlet stuff and then 25 minutes doing dungeons you know yeah exactly i you know i uh played stardew valley last year also and was kind of just at the point where i'm like i don't i think there's a certain sort of person who has a like you could definitely imagine the version of this where you go back to your hamlet and it's like where do you want to place this upgrade what do you want this to be? And where people are like sharing their Hamlet designs if they wanted to go down that road. And that's just, I'm very happy for people who want to make their perfect Stardew Valley farm or their perfect Animal Crossing island. Like, I'm so glad they get fulfilled from that. I never do. I look at like when I had Animal Crossing and I gave it a try and I just did not have a good experience. I was like, I don't know. Should I want to put a work to putting a lighthouse here? I guess I'll make a little Japanese <laughs> garden, but I don't really feel fulfilled having done this. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to get back in the ruins and fight some more skeletons. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, yeah. Cool. Um, last thing on here before the, uh, spoiler wall comes up is, uh, just a little talk about the DLCs. Um, mm-hmm. we both bought the complete edition of the game that comes with, uh, two DLC packs. One, uh, it comes with some extra characters, uh, which I think are free downloads anyway, but I think one, I, uh, so I think the shield bearer was two bucks if you don't get it as part of the package. Oh, okay. Okay. And I think the, and the, uh, the musketeer, the musketeer was free, and but the, the, the flagellant was a DLC uh, yes. class also. And it was part of the crimson keep expansion. Okay. But yeah. one thing that's very cool is that the game, if you have all the DLC, it lets you insert it piecemeal. Like there's literally a menu where you can click on what you want, which is a very, a surprisingly intuitive, well-designed interface given uh, some of the other issues (laughs) on Switch with that. But um, I saw people say that you don't want to start with Crimson Keep on or Crimson Court on if it's your first time playing. So I didn't. But what's very nice is it lets you turn on the flagellant without turning on the rest of Crimson Court. 
Yeah. Which is good because I actually didn't remember I had it clicked on and I didn't remember it was a DLC class because I think the flagellant feels like such a definitive part of the game for me where he's he fits in very well as this interesting uh he's he's like your third he primary healer option like there's a few other people who have healing moves but he's mm-hmm. one where uh he does these heals um where he risks giving himself bleed to heal other people but he has high bleed resist but yeah. even if he gets it he's like meant to take damage and he has moves that activate when he's below a third of his health um right. and he can inflict uh powerful bleeds across multiple enemies just very useful for one boss it feels right. almost like essential um the so yeah the other dlc so the dlc also allows you to build those districts which are huge late game uh resource heirloom sinks yeah Um, it's designed for people who are going to keep playing darkest dungeon like after they beat you know i i played it until the point where i beat the darkest dungeon and i had unlocked you know three of the districts out of let's say there are 10 i had unlocked three of them um because i just don't i just didn't have the heirlooms for the others yeah like if you wanted to just keep playing and go do the crimson court uh bosses and stuff like that you're going to keep running missions and keep getting heirlooms you got to have something to spend it on so that's what that felt like yeah i got like the bank the puppet theater the bank was one reason why it gives you like five percent interest on whatever gold you have and so that's one way. Once I got above a hundred thousand gold, I was just stacking and stacking and stacking it because you're using maybe five thousand. Yeah. If you're, and that's even if you're kind of just not being frugal, you toss around like five thousand to provision and upgrade in between missions. So you can very quickly, you know, just plus what you're getting from quests, you're just racking up gold. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the other DLC is uh, The Color of Madness, and I right. like that they're all, like, different Lovecraftian sort of riffs, because uh, this is, like, A Color of Space, which I haven't seen but or read, but I know it's a thing. Um, and it's, uh, it's that's, like, I, I don't love, other than the districts, which are nice, and I like the Shield Bear class, that might actually be one of my top three, that's the one it. It can do blight, and it also moves a lot, and it has an attack that pierces armor, which very few things do, and can hit mm-hmm. any row, which right. seems a little... It's almost like a little unbalanced in how... It feels like it's a cut above other moves, where you're like, well, you want this move. Normally, you kind of have to make decisions, but I'm like, well, that's one that I always want. Mm-hmm. So I like the shield bear. I prefer the musketeer garb over the arbalist i like having them shoot the little gun um i uh i like the flagellant like i said i don't actually love the bulk of either of the two dlcs because the color did you did you said you didn't actually play crimson core did you do color of madness at all yeah so the color of madness is like it's not endless battles, but like you're not making it's like your way Coliseum through a dungeon. Mode. 
Yeah, you're doing one fight after another after another, and there's no breaks in between. Uh, so I did one of those, and I didn't have a lot of fun with it, so I decided I'm not doing any more. Yeah, it's just, it takes too long. There's um, <clears throat> there's not enough enemy variety. I mean, they, they start to swap in enemies from other places. You actually do get checkpoints where you can heal and stuff, but it just takes so long and it feels very you the thing you get from it are these crystals which are useful to some degree because you can spend them on these special charms but they require so much you can also uh you get special uh crystal dudes who can only, who are high, fully leveled all upgraded and they just want to do the... You can only use them in the farmstead, the Color of Madness Coliseum area. And it's the kind of thing where you have to beat... So you beat the uh, the Miller. Um, and he... And then you can keep going to try to get to i forget what it's called because i didn't actually try this because i just was i didn't find it that interesting or compelling um you pretty much have to have a vestal because you're going to take too much damage you pretty much have to have a jester because you're going to have a bunch of stress so it just feels like you're a little too locked in um and like i said it's nice they give you these sort of rental dudes who come in just for it so you don't have to worry about using your own team as part of it. Um, I just didn't love it. And the Crimson Court, I started doing it, and it's got... I beat the first big boss of it. It's got these mini-boss crocodiles also. And it's cool that it's, like, vampires, but they're mosquito-themed instead of bat-themed, which is kind of a a neat twist. Mm-hmm. But it's these massive dungeons that you can... the 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 like gimmick is that instead of doing a short run and then being done, you go back into the dungeon and you can keep going to the same place. You just find these keys and you use the keys to go to, you know, gates and unlock the gates and then you can advance and you know, it's it's long and it's very long. Yeah. And it's very and also, to me. Yeah. Your characters will get inflicted with this like vampirism status effect and then you have to when you're doing your provisions for like any mission at all uh, you have to take blood with you as one of your like consumable items and it takes up an inventory slot and so like i knew about all this stuff before i would make the decision to turn it on or not and i was like that you know this game is already interesting enough i don't need this extra layer of management yeah on there so i didn't do it at all yeah, no, and I don't think that's particularly interesting, and people sort of framed it in like, yeah, that's not necessarily that interesting, but it's worth it because of the big dungeons that you go through when you revisit. I tried those, and something about going through those big Crimson Court dungeons, like, it felt like someone kind of taking the cool presentation off of the whole thing and sort of showing this like guy in a you know if you see like the the you know the man behind the curtain like operating the stuff yeah so at some point i'm doing that and i'm like i'm going through these hallways 
The hallways are all the same. There's like four curios. There's not that many options. The hallways are super long. You have to wander around forever. You find the key. The key's not interesting in any way. You bring it to the next one. You're just... It feels like you're just doing the, like, chewing, plain, whatever version of uh, Darkest Dungeon. You eventually hit a boss, but it takes a very long time. You're not mm-hmm. finishing missions by the skin of your teeth. You're just dragging on and on and on. So the interesting thing is both of both Crimson Core and Color of Madness, I think, kind of say like, well, what if instead of focusing on this loop, you just did one part of it over and over and over and over? And I'm like, yeah. well, I think there's a reason you didn't make the base game this way. Yeah, because that's this, a good it, point. Yeah, it it works having the loop going in the dungeon. You almost die, but you make it. But like you get back to the hamlet, you kind yeah, of uh I'm you gonna kind have of another like, team. Get your I'm next team ready, in... deal with the stuff that happened to the last team, you know. It's yeah. it's a really tight loop. And so yeah, like when I started the Color of Madness and it was like, okay, this is just battle after battle after battle after battle. Yeah. I was like, uh, you know, I already get I already get so much enjoyment out of going through the regular dungeons and then you know, you take this break in the Hamlet afterwards. I just didn't feel like that was going to be something I would enjoy, like, continuing. No, it's, for both of them, it's, yeah. Yeah, and then for the Crimson Court, I just read enough about, like, you know, the vampirism status effect and then um, the difficulty of it, and I just felt like, you know what, like, this has happened several times on this show where, uh, there's optional stuff or there's DLC or like it, like in Hollow Knight, the optional content. Like when I'm playing games and like even if I'm specifically going to talk about it on this podcast, I don't really f- force myself to go through that stuff if I don't think I'm going to have fun with it. So yeah, that's a good way this to was go. One, this was one of those where I was like, eh, that's all right. So I think, yeah, I think that's the thing. The two big issues I have with it is one, it's that thing where it's like, hey, isn't it cool that you're having to constantly use different characters and go through different areas? Mm-hmm. Hey, well, what if instead of that, you use the same character in the same area for an hour straight? And it's like, yeah. no, that's bad. This this undermines the entire thing that makes this game so good. And I mean, the thing with Hollow Knight also, there's one of those, I love Hollow, Hollow Knight's up there in my top games. And that's one where also the DLC in Hollow Knight is like, there's one of the queen, the hive one is pretty good. And then there's like some minor ones do stuff, but it's a sort of a similar thing where it's kind of like, Oh, well, I guess you could do this. And you're like, that's like, there's one that's just like going through these boss gauntlets and kind of similar to the color of madness. I don't love having to do a long thing where if I mess up at any time, I'm done. I'm kind of yeah. like, well, I don't want to try that again. I got to like, like you get like, it's it's both in Color of Madness and in the God, uh, I forget what exactly, the God something, uh, Hollow Knight. They're like, God all right, Master. you have to fight God. Yeah, you have to fight like 10 bosses in a row. And then you're going to fight a new boss for the first time that yeah. you've never seen. And you're like, 
But can I the just whole fight point the new of boss? this? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, but the whole point of this game and the boss fights that make them so good is getting to fight the boss over and over and over again until you learn its moves and you finally have that fight where you beat it. But now you're telling me every time I want to attempt it, I have to spend 30 minutes refighting these old bosses again. It's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, why would I yeah. want to do that? <laughs> exactly. So there's the um, Darkest Dungeon DLCs. Uh, neither of us are super high on them. I mean, if, you, if you're playing Darkest Dungeon and you think, like, that does sound cool to me, I do like, you know coliseum style stuff or i do like super long dungeons and stuff like that or i wish there was another layer of strategy or management on top of this then you may want to check them out uh just because we weren't interested doesn't mean that they're not good for somebody so we just wanted to go through those we are going to take a little music break when we come back we will give our final thoughts in summary do we recommend darkest dungeon and then a little housekeeping before the spoiler wall So, final thoughts about Darkest Dungeon for uh, people who are listening, kind of your kind of in summation. Andrew, how do you feel about Darkest Dungeon? What do you want uh, the people to know uh, that we haven't already said, if anything? Uh, I'm, I'm very positive on it. I think it's, uh, I think is you have to know what you're getting going in. You have to know that there might be a little bit of a learning curve and that you're kind of going to be in it for the long haul. Um, But I think there's something very satisfying to me about getting to try out so many different strategies and getting to use so many different characters and to, you know, sort of feel yourself kind of climbing this spiral slowly. Um, I definitely think, uh, you know, like I said, I got it on sale or especially people who I know the sequel's coming out soon. So if anyone wants to try and experience the original, first um it's a game that really i think allows for a level of personal play and expression because like we said earlier i think everyone kind of has their favorites of the crew and a lot and almost no one seems to have the exact same favorites so Mm -hmm. it definitely sort of caters to kind of different preferences obviously within the more narrow range of uh intense turn-based combat but uh if you like uh shin megami tensei 5 but you want it to be a little more lovecraftian maybe check out darkest dungeon yeah yeah i um i'm definitely recommending this game to anyone who likes turn-based combat and likes like the possibilities you know turn-based combat's been around a really long time and so there's a lot of um a lot of different forms of it. I think turn-based combat can be extremely boring, um, and it it almost takes a kind of special game to make it really, really engaging, uh, and Darkest Dungeon does that. So if you're a fan of turn-based combat and want to see 
a really good implementation of it. This is great. If you like Lovecraftian uh, themes, this is also going to be right up your alley. Um, I got, I just got super addicted to Darkest Dungeon, um, and I, I wanted to play a run whenever I had, you know, my lunch break at work or whenever I had, you know, 30 minutes before bed. And then I would go to sleep and have horrible dreams about tentacle <laughs> monsters and stuff like that. But I uh, see, I would have wonderful, sexy dreams about tentacle monsters every yeah, time. Well, <laughs> Is that not okay? That, yeah. That's why we, uh, that's why we make a good team, uh, exactly. as host and guest coming at it with different perspectives. <laughs> um, um, the, uh, I don't know. In, in this game, like I in the episode about Dark Souls uh, and uh, other difficult games um, on the show, we we always talk about this good feeling of overcoming a challenge, and like you're you're just constantly being presented with challenges in this game, um, and you get that same good feeling of like figuring out what to do for this specific challenge uh, and getting over that. So it's a good thing. Um, I, so again, I do recommend this game. I do want to mention that uh, you should play this game on radiant mode, I think. And I, I think I kept teasing this and then I forgot to like fully talk about the difficulty modes. There's three difficulty modes. The standard one is called uh, darkest difficulty. Uh, and then there's radiant mode, which does not make the game easier at all. It just cuts down on grinding those heirlooms and gold and stuff like that. So I think that I think this should be the standard mode. Yeah. Because I can see how this would turn into like a pretty insufferable grind on darkest mode. Like it's you just already, have to Yeah. It's already hard. You already have to really focus on specific uh heirlooms at certain times. It's it's not like you're just like drowning in these heirlooms on radiant mode either. No, you it's already to, yeah, it's they're already uh, feels like it's something you have to go through. And the other thing Radiant does is it gives you, um, I think it's in regular uh, that you have, um, you can only take a unit one level higher than the quest, like they refuse right. to go. Whereas Radiant... Or lower too. Well, can you take... Theoretically, you can take a lower one, but they'll just be all stressed out. Or no? Is that I mean, not the like case? you, you. I mean, like you can take a level five person into a level two dungeon on Radiant. Um, mm, I think. I think no? level five and three. I think Radiant it's two differences. I don't think you can go okay. to. Well, it's it's one, three, and five, right? Right. So I think it's once they hit four, they refuse to go to one. Okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I think that's the case. So uh, so there's more, but and theoretically, that means that you uh, can sometimes take like a level five into a three quest to sort right. of make things easier on three other threes who you're training. Uh, but even then... If you're if you have a level five, you've beaten level three quests by that point. So really, it's still just kind of letting you reduce the grind to some degree. Right. It's not really yeah. It's not really making the game easier. It's just making it less grindy. And it's already. I think it's it's a very compelling loop, but it is already kind of grindy. Like there are going to be. It's, 
it's a long game. It took yeah. 67 hours to beat it. Uh, so that's the benefit of radiant mode is it cuts out. I'm, I assume it cuts at least like 15 to 20 hours out yeah. of, uh, beating the game. Uh, so I recommend you play on radiant mode. If you're a fucking sicko, you can play on the Stygian or Blood Moon yeah. uh, difficulty, which depending on uh, what version of the game you have, it has different names. Uh, that thing uh, introduces a couple of limits. It puts a limit on the number of characters that can die uh, and a time limit. So you go through this loop, you go week by week, and one mission is one week. And I beat this game on like week 90 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I was somewhere around that. And the highest difficulty puts a time limit on it. That seems like a sicko thing for people replaying this game for like the third time or something like that. It feels like one of those things that you just... It feels like it's almost like uh, beating the heart. In, it's like a worse version of it because it takes it take you 70 hours, which might then get thrown away at the end. But um, it feels like something like... Where you're like, well, I want to do this thing because that's part of the challenge that I could do, but I don't, I can't imagine that being enjoyable or even like satisfying, I guess I should say. I mean, maybe, you know, teach their own. If someone loves it, good for them. It, it might be cool for someone to like complete that and be like, hey, I actually did it within these parameters, but that's not for me. And no, definitely should not be for a first time player. Play on radiant mode. That's what I say. So yeah, that is the non-spoiler section of Darkest Dungeon. Uh, before we get into the spoiler wall, just uh, for anyone who's going to tap out um, and maybe go play the game and then come back to this podcast a month later when you're done with it, um, thank you for listening. And uh, if you would like to support Tales from the Backlog, please uh, you do all those podcast things, you know, subscribing, ratings and reviews if your platform of choice allows it. And if it doesn't, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, and leave a review. Spread the good word. I also do another podcast called A Top 3 Podcast, where my friends and I pick a topic. We do our top threes. That's why we also do top threes on this podcast, because my brain is broken and I can't categorize things in any other way. Um, So check out A Top 3 Podcast. Remember, uh, Tales from the Backlog ratings and reviews, and also check out the TV Nopes and House of House podcasts yes. with Andrew if you enjoy uh, breakdowns of horrible uh, TV tropes pages that shouldn't exist. Uh, if you want to know why Nazis are bad, perhaps, as uh, yeah, an example. Yeah, that's how you could learn. <laughs> and if you're a fan of the show House, which is a uh, fantastic show uh, that yes. I enjoy. So uh, anything else you want to plug other than yeah. um, those those shows um people can follow me on twitter and instagram and tiktok though i don't update that one too much uh at andrew taven all one word for each of those i also got andrewtaven.com uh i'm a stand-up comedian also so uh if you want to catch me in between covid waves and you're uh, in new york or in one of the other places i go you can check out that site to see where i'll be um and depending when this is released at some point in the next couple months i'm going to start releasing uh we're going to start releasing sound snacks which is an audio sketch show i co-wrote with uh my writing partner casey turgeson over the pandemic so sound snacks with a z at the end uh hopefully out within the next couple months we'll see cool 
So be on the lookout for that. And I will put links to uh, both podcasts that Andrew does and social media stuff down in the episode oh, description you. so people can uh, don't try to spell anything. Spelling's for losers. Yeah. Uh, just click links. It's 2022. Click links. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All kids these days know is uh, eat hot chip, click links, and lie. <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a break, uh, and then when we come back, it is spoiler talk for Darkest Dungeon. Yes. Okay, we're back and it's spoiler time for Darkest Dungeon and we're going to kick off the spoiler section by once again uh, with my broken brain I'm not really able to talk about anything unless it's in a top three format so we're going to talk about our top three bosses from the regular four levels from the Cove, the Weald, the Warrens, and the Ruins. So I'll let you go first. Um, What's one of your top three bosses? I'll say uh, I like the Formless Flesh a lot. Uh, that's one of yeah. the ones in the Warren. It's a bunch of uh, pig parts that are all moving around and stuff. Um, <laughs> I think uh, the thing I really love about that is that because uh, piggies are susceptible to bleed and because these four nodules, which are constantly changing to different body parts with different properties... Um, are all they share one giant health bar, which is very cool because when you see like the heart, which heals other pieces, uh, or I guess heals the big health bar because it's one big health bar, um, is very susceptible to attacks. So, and they're also all susceptible to bleed. But, uh, if you can inflict bleed, like the ha- you bring like a houndmaster and a uh, uh, flagellant. Who can and or a jester or all three, who can all inflict uh, bleed on multiple targets, and bleed. Yeah. I don't think we even mentioned this beforehand, but all the damage over time stuff stacks. So if you bring those three in, you can very quickly start racking up big damage because they'll all take away from that one health bar, and it's just very satisfying to be able to. Uh, stack up these huge bleeds on it and take out big chunks of this giant health bar. Right. It's just very nice to do. So like for that, I always took like just all my, 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 just my, all the characters that do bleed. So like Jester, I think I took flagellants, the MVP for this fight. And then the hound master also. Um, And this fight all three times is just, is real easy. If you figure out, stack bleed on all the parts and just watch that health bar melt down um do attacks that hit multiple spots or attacks that can hit uh the weakest part wherever it pops up i also like the story for the formless flesh where it's like the ancestor was just tossing out pig parts and then they they fuse together into this just monstrosity so yeah that's a cool fight Um, they all start and just like uh, the the vision the visuals of it are so good too. You know, it's like that uh that Reddit post or whatever. My uh 
you seen the one that's talking about the Dom being like my subs with the different ages have unionized? Have you seen that <laughs> people share that around? So it's like my pig parts, parentheses, I don't know, four, six, three, two, four have unionized. Maybe I'll... Yeah. It's too much work, <laughs> but you know, one person, I, one person would get a kick out of that, right? The intersection between <laughs> our relationships, lefty, darkest dungeon, Twitter or whatever. Yeah. There's someone in the middle of that Venn diagram for sure. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite fights is the, uh, the swine, uh, Prince King, uh, fight. Um, and in this fight, it's also in the Warrens, uh, so Bleed is also good against them. But the gimmick for the Swine King is that he has a little helper dude named Wilbur, of course, a little piggy, um, who uh, you are always tempted in these kind of fights where it's like boss and ads to kill the ads so that you can focus on the boss. But in this fight, you should never, ever, ever attack Wilbur mm-hmm. Uh, because the Swine King will freak out and will can completely wipe your party out uh, if you attack Wilbur. Uh, so you just need to focus on that. Uh, Wilbur puts marks on your party. So this is the one we talked about where the Arbalest is super helpful removing those marks. Because uh, if you leave those marks up, the Swine King boss will hit extremely hard um, to your party. So clearing those out, not attacking Wilbur good strategy um and on the highest level the champion level i killed the swine god i think it is on the highest level i killed him no problem but then when you kill him wilbur freaks out and he starts putting stress and uh stuns and stuff on your party and so i was like i say i killed him no problem but i was at low ish health um and he put Two of my characters on death's door during his wow. freak out kept stunning. So we couldn't actually kill him a bunch of stress. Like someone got afflicted during that. And then he <laughs> hits for like a few hit points, but you're stunned. You can't do anything. Uh, so he actually put two of my characters on death's door and I was like, Oh my God, am I going to people going to die just <laughs> from Wilbur's <laughs> little freak out here? So wow. that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I managed pretty well. I think I did Mark. I would, take someone to clear because the arbalest at slash musketeer also has uh some good mark skills so i'd use him to clear his marks and then put my own up and i had like bounty hunter i think and some other people and you can put the marks on uh the big the big pig and just uh tear him down real yeah, nice get those crits yeah yeah yep uh what's another one that you really enjoyed um I'll say, actually, even though it's pretty basic and it's the first one, I kind of like the Necromancer because if you if you have a few... So he just summons skeletons, and that's his main thing. He fights, he has attacks that summon skeletons, and you can pretty easily um, get... If you use attacks that hit multiple people, the Crusader is a great one for that because he has the bonus against undead, and he has a Zealous Accusation, which hits the first two rows mm-hmm. um the skeletons are uh wimpy enough that you can keep them under control and get in some nice hits on the necromancer all by just sort of maintaining a good kind of status like a good like uh 
kind of attack pattern and it feels nice to be able to balance all that and keep it going even if it is yeah the most basic probably of the bosses yeah my strategy with him was to put blight on him like mm-hmm. stack up blights as <clears throat> much as i could uh stun him um because if you can stun him he can he will summon one fewer skeleton yeah um, or take one turn longer to fill it up and then uh, just find a way to hit him when he eventually makes his way to the back row. I never found him to be that hard, but um, it is cool. It's actually another one where I thought, actually, all of the done, all of the bosses here that someone adds, like the Necromancer and the uh, the Cannon, um, it tricks you into fighting the adds when you should be focusing on either the boss or one specific. Add yeah that gets summoned in and i think the necromancer is the same like if you i thought if you focus on the skeletons you will just be wasting your time the skeletons actually don't hit that hard so it's it's fine yeah um, so yeah it, it's a good uh good first boss i think and then by the time you get to the champion level it's it's not so hard uh but it's all right yeah um Another one that I liked is uh, I well I like the cannon so we talked about that yeah um, the cannon's an interesting fight uh, because um, you have to destroy this cannon but it's summoning in ads and there's one specific dude who has the you know the the igniter Mash, for the torch. cannon yeah yeah uh, the fire stick and so if you leave him alone. Um, or if you're not able to kill him, he'll light the cannon and it will fuck up your party if the cannon fires. Uh, So it's this cool uh, strategy of like, you have to take out the dude with the match. Um, If you have time, you should attack the cannon for sure because the battle ends when you destroy the cannon. Um, And... um, there are other dudes on the battlefield too, and you have to like at least pay attention to them. You you probably don't need to kill them, but you should at least like know what they're up to. So you're balancing a lot of things with like the these two main goals: hit the cannon when you can, take out the dude uh, with the match. Yeah, and I actually so I only one time I think it was the first time I fought them that I ever had the cannon actually get lit, and it did a uh, misfire. So I oh, lucked nice. out. Yeah, it'll do a misfire and you get stress relief and it doesn't do any damage. Um, I like that. I was actually, that was going to be my other, my top, uh, my other third. Because okay. um, I really like when the bosses kind of give you a, so like one, I don't know if this is going to be your, if you were, is were you going to mention the prop, was the profit going to be your third or no? Yeah, the prophet's probably okay. going to be my third. So I think the prophet's cool without getting into too much specific yet. But one thing is it kind of requires a specific unit. Whereas one thing I really like about the cannon is it requires a specific goal where it's like you have to, uh, you have to be able to take out this one unit who could be in any row. So that doesn't necessarily mean, all right, well, that means I need uh, this person. But you're like, all right, well, what's my strategy for making sure I can guarantee to take out a unit in any row in any given turn? Mm-hmm. 
And so I think I ended up with like a grave robber, a musketeer, and I forget what the other two were. But the grave robbers got a nice like dagger attack that could almost always kill them. And sometimes I need one. I think I also had highwayman. And highwayman's nice because you can do the repost, the duelist advance to the cannon, and then he'll repost on the other guys um, to show them what for. Yeah. This was the match uh, when I talked about earlier when I brought an Arbalest because I was like, that that match guy, if I remember right, he's usually in rank two or rank three. And I was like, okay, take the Arbalest. Uh, we'll mark the cannon uh, and we'll mark that guy. So we make sure we kill that guy quickly and uh, do extra damage to the cannon. But then the cannon fired and just killed the Arbalest in one oh, hit, no. basically. And so I was like, well... I guess not. Um, so I had to run. Yeah, away you from gotta. It. Yeah, the match guy is definitely slower than average, so it gives you a chance. But you gotta still make sure you got a somewhat fast person because you gotta take him out before you can light that cannon. Yeah. So I guess my last um, in the top three we mentioned before is the prophet, uh, who is uh, a well uh, a prophet he's got like a a hooded robe on and stuff and he's holding his own eyeballs which is just fantastic character design uh automatically good story there i think Uh, he has the uh my favorite he might have my favorite story because the story is that the the ancestor was doing all these terrible things and then this prophet started going around talking about how he's doing these terrible things and he tried to kill the prophet and the prophet kept coming back until finally he decided to just say, like, all right, fine. You want to see what I'm up to? Here. Yeah. And he showed him what he was working on, and the prophet tore out his own eyes, which is just a great, like, it's great because it almost feels like something you hear in, like, a Shakespearean tragedy or, like, a Greek tragedy or, like, a, you know, a tragic Bible figure. But instead mm-hmm. of, like, God ironically punishing someone, it's this asshole just ironically punishing this guy. Of being yeah. like, yeah, man, you want to see what I'm doing so bad? Fucking enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's, it's one of those Lovecraft things too, where like seeing the truth or like seeing what's actually happening drives you crazy without just yeah. straight up being, um, you know, a retelling of a Lovecraft story or something like that. So yeah, cool lore with him. Um, and then the fight is cool too. And you said that there is a character that's basically mandatory for this, mm-hmm. uh, which is the man at arms um, guarding from the falling ceiling attack. Um, and like I said earlier, I, th- I hinted at this before the spoiler wall. This is a boss that is always in the back row. And I know if you destroy the pews, you get treasure, I think. Uh, and I never I, tried. <laughs> I think I try in all three fights. I was able to destroy one of the pews and um, I just, I just couldn't like, and it wasn't worth it. You get it. Yeah. You get like something you can sell, but it's, it's not worth it. You should have just killed the boss quicker. Um, so yeah, I needed someone to hit the back row. So a, uh, a hellion, an arbalist again, uh, those are good. And then man at arms to guard whoever the stuff's going to fall on. And it ends up being a pretty uh, reasonable fight. Uh, if you have the man at arms, or yeah. I guess if you, if you buff your uh your party's 
dodge chance it could be doable but the man at arms is definitely the safer strategy you can guard with the the hound master but he relies on dodging dodge guarding instead of strength guarding and his only lasts for one turn and you shouldn't um, you shouldn't be taking a hound master into the ruins anyway because yeah they can't he's bleed not as anyone. Um, yeah, this is. I mean, this is. Uh, I guess we're gonna talk about the darkest dungeon briefly, right? Like, I don't, I don't yeah. love having to sort of. I I I think it's the. I wonder if I would have felt differently. Because I had people in the Slack sort of be like, oh, by the way, this boss, you got to make sure you have a man-at-arms for I'm not going to explain why, but you got to. And I actually wonder if... I, I like the idea of the Sonorous Prophet. I really like the story of the Sonorous Prophet, or the whatever level of Prophet. Um, I wonder if I kind of didn't have that strategy spoiled for me, if I would feel even more glowing about that fight, if I had been the one... To be like, oh shit, wait, this ability in that fight? Oh, yeah. nice. So I, yeah. and, you know, that's my own fault. I think I even like said, because once you know, you're like, well, now I feel like I have to know. Why but, would you um, Why would you not use the optimal strategy in a game exactly. that's as, as punishing as this game, you know? So, so I, I, I do kind of, uh, and like I said, I think I might have even double-checked because I was like, right, was that the prophet that you said that you need to use this on? They're like, yeah, that's the one. Okay, cool. But I, I think I... It's my own fault, really. I think if I had just figured it out on my own, even though it's not like it's that crazy a thing to figure out, I would have been like, oh, shit, wait. And it would have been like my own discovery. The same way that, like, you know, for uh, the like for the brigand fight or whatever or for like the formless flesh where i'm like oh i can stack so much bleed or whatever where it's like these are pretty standard strategies that you would find if you look it up but just finding it on feeling like you find it on your own feels very satisfying yeah for sure i uh i look at a guide uh when i play most games mm-hmm. um i'm not ashamed of that no, this that's, is I mean, wrong. part of part of my enjoyment for a, a lot of games is um Along, playing along with a guide. So I looked at a guide for most of the boss fights. And then I think in the Slack too, I got that same advice. Um, so I didn't figure that out on my own. It did not lessen my enjoyment of That's uh, good. playing it. So there's that. And the same goes for the Darkest Dungeon. Um, I looked at a guide for at least two of the Darkest Dungeon levels. Um I it's, 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 yeah like I heard enough people saying like the third mission of Darkest Dungeon is like the hardest mission in the game and you have to have a good strategy for it so I was like okay well I'm gonna look up what that strategy is uh, because um, I I mean even with a guide I failed the first time I played it uh, that that one particular mission but real quick um, I checked my teams. Um, because you know, in the roster, after you beat a darkest dungeon yeah, mission, you can see your dudes get yeah, yeah. torches. So I checked. Uh, so I had three occultists. Uh, so I guess they were the darkest dungeon MVPs uh, because they can heal and they get extra damage against eldritch stuff. Um, two vestals survived, although uh, one of them was sacrificed in the last mission. 
Um, two highwaymen, two hellions, two houndmasters, one grave robber who was the MVP of the first Darkest Dungeon mission, uh, one jester and one plague doctor with one plague doctor. No, no, one plague doctor that was sacrificed. I actually took the starting four into the last mission with me and uh, sacrificed the Vestal and the plague doctor. Uh, So those are my survivors. Occultist and Vestals were the MVPs of the whole thing for me. Yeah, I think that was similar to me. I remember my exact teams. Um, The only one I failed, I also uh, did use a guide for the third one. And that one I don't regret at all because I, I think I was kind of... Like I said, I said this way earlier, but I like that it has an end game. I am very happy it does instead of not having one. I don't think it's my favorite aspect of the game. I think it feels like one of the few things where I'm like, they could have done this better. I don't know exactly how, but I'm just like, the first mission felt adequately satisfying to me where it was challenging and it yeah. showed new enemies, but it felt like something that there were multiple ways of overcoming, which I like. Like it was difficult, but you could bring different strategies to it depending on what you've seen. Yeah. The second mission has these enemies that use this very powerful attack multiple times in a turn and you get three trinkets after the first yeah. mission. That lets you, that gets rid of that attack, but you only have three, so you either need to, again, it's kind of like, well, you kind of just need to bring a man-at-arms. Um, although I think I actually ended up doing it with a Houndmaster, but that's worse because you need to do that every turn. Because yeah, uh, the Houndmaster only guards for like one turn, whereas the man-at-arms guards for more. Um it is still so, viable. Oh, sorry. So real quick, um, yeah. in that mission, I forgot to write this in the notes. I just remembered it. Um, I think I hit a bug or maybe it was a radiant mode concession where huh. you get those three torch trinkets that yeah. negate that one attack. So I did the mission. I took a man at arms and I lost. Uh, like I, my party... When you run from Darkest Dungeon missions, you have to sacrifice one character. Yes. Uh, So I think two of my characters died, and then I ran away because I was like, well, losing one character is better than losing two because I'm definitely not going to beat it with only two characters. Yeah. Um, And then when I booted it back up, I had four of those trinkets. Oh, yeah. that's No, that's a bug. That did not happen. I lost that mission once, (laughs) and I did not get a fourth trinket. Yeah, so I I beat it because I got four of those trinkets, and so maybe I cheated my way through it. But, you know, I I get it. You know, I get the the thing. Um, I just – I don't don't remember exactly what happened uh, in the mission where I lost my two characters, but – uh, yeah, I, I passed that one on a very weird uh, bug. That happened, uh, I just beat Returnal recently too, and I beat the hardest part in the game on a bug, I think. So this is, I'm everything's coming up, David, dude. Nice. Yeah, no, for this one, for that one, I think I brought two highwaymen, and one of them had was the one who didn't have a trinket, and I gave him two trinkets, like very powerful anti-occult 
uh, or anti-Eldritch trinkets. Yeah. So he was able to just wreck the, like, Templar Scorpion mini-bosses. Him and I gave the other one one. And so I had, like, two highwaymen just shredding those guys. So that matched pretty well. I looked up a guide for the third one, again, just because I don't want to... It didn't feel like an interesting challenge and it's just it's just so long like i can't imagine doing that dungeon and i think you get tele- you can get teleported around yeah so then you can get lost i yeah i can't imagine doing that dungeon multiple times to try to figure out what the strategy is yeah. so i actually just i actually just looked up a map and um i kind of read a guide that said like okay this enemy can teleport you yeah um, get rid of it kill this thing as soon as you can so i did that um i took hound masters on i think darkest dungeon two and three because with a trinket the hound master has the best stun move in the entire game i think uh, with the the cudgel so whenever i came up against one of those things that could teleport you or something like that it was like okay houndmaster fuck him up we'll uh we'll deal with him this way um so yeah no absolutely no qualms about using a guide for any of the game but especially for darkest dungeon 3 because i think that that kind of sucks and i felt i actually ended up feeling good about um I felt like the level of challenge knowing where to go was kind of satisfying. Like, the enemies you fight are still hard and interesting. So it was like, that felt good enough to me. And then the final one, I actually, that's just the boss fight against spoilers, uh, the Ancestor, who's become like the Silver Surfer of the evil Heart of (laughs) Darkness. And uh, I really like that fight, even though I made it harder for myself. Because at the beginning, he makes three copies of himself. And they're perfect copies. And you have to kill them. And then sometimes he'll make an imperfect copy. And then you kill that and it damages him. But I thought, because I killed one of the copies and then it made a perfect copy. And then I was like, okay, I bet I need to kill them all at once. Like, have them all dead before he can regenerate. So kill them all in one turn. So, you know, balance out the damage I'm doing. And I did that. And when I did that, he generated two perfects and an imperfect. I hurt the imperfect. And I was like, there you go. All right, you got to kill them all three. And then I saw later that it's just that the more he generates, the more likely it is to generate imperfect. But I made it much harder on myself Thinking you have to kill. Thinking all of them. it only happened when I kill all at once, but I right. still managed. Um, I forget exactly who I sacrificed. I know the last guy I came down to was an arbalist who I had to use like the shotgun attack because he was like in the second row, just because everyone else was dead. But um, oh shit! I yeah, didn't even, what I didn't consider if you sacrifice people and then you ended up with like someone who can't attack from the front rows, that would suck. Yeah, but it ended up working out, and it's, for as much as the middle two portions of the Darkest Dungeon were less than ideal to me, I think the conclusion is very satisfying. It's a longish fight, but you can just jump right into it. And And there's also, 
in the middle of that fight, there's a part where attacking this thing heals your whole body. Yeah. So they're they're basically saying if you can make it to this point, you deserve. You've done what you need to do. You're gonna you're gonna beat this. That's my my philosophy for final bosses, especially in long RPGs. Is it should feel like a struggle, but it actually shouldn't be, because that's yeah. the end of the game, and there's nothing else. And, like, when I played Final Fantasy IV for the first time, I played the DS version, and I got party wiped after by Zeromis after watching, like, a 20-minute cutscene that you can't skip. And I'm like, <laughs> well, that's the end of the game for me. I'm not doing this again. I'm not going yeah. to try this again. I just don't. I, why? So I can watch an ending I can watch on YouTube? Like, no, I'm done. It's hours yeah. and hours, and I'm done. Like, um... So I think that the ideal for me is that the the final boss uh, should either be not have a 20-minute cutscene before you fight them or should feel (laughs) like it felt like I was going to lose, but I didn't. Yeah. Like, I because there's nothing else after that. So there's nothing – because the thing that keeps me going is more content, and there's not going to be more content. So – right. Well, I mean, this game in general just has a great perspective on what a boss fight should be and how to make boss fights interesting and how to make them like balanced at the right level. And it's like I never got to a boss. I mean, I was always like the proper level and like equipment properly upgraded for like the challenge that I was going into. Yeah. But even then, I never got to a point where I was like, okay, I have this boss figured out. Why is it still only at 75%? hp you know yeah and so the the final boss like you go through the hard part of the final boss where it shuffles up your party and stuff like that and then you get through that and the game is like okay congratulations we have a couple other things to do but go ahead heal your party up get ready for the last part the last part's not that hard it's more you know spectacle than it is challenge the last phase of it so yeah it's really cool um the way that it ends up being your ancestor and um, you beat the ancestor and like, so I'm kind of unclear on this. You, you are in like this loop and now you are the ancestor. I don't know. You, you do send the letter, right? I think it's, I don't know that it's supposed to be like one to one, but I think that it's, it's definitely like a, well, this is gone for now, but this is just something that is going to keep happening. I mean, it's, it's, I think it does explicitly say that, uh, the, the sort of horror of it, the Lovecraftian horror of it is that this creature created, uh, humans to eventually like, it's sort of a Lavos thing, I think, where it, like, created humans to eventually uh, consume them. And it is, like, you know, it's sort of an Evangelion thing. No, it's, I'd say it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's all these, it's like, it's the horror of it is, I think, that it's going to try and destroy you, but also, if you, even if you could somehow destroy it it is a fundamental uh requirement of the existence of humans so like you can't like it's like you couldn't it wants to destroy you but also 
you couldn't do that. It is the very thing that both will consume people, but also is necessary for their existence, which is, oh, terrifying. So then you send yeah. the whole thing, and there's just nothing, and it it just wants, you know, this to happen. And everything you are right. trying to do is just all part of this. There's And so while you can head it off for now, that's not going to do much, because it's, you know... So because yeah, yeah, these are these are things that are much uh bigger than you know the the final boss of, well that's I was gonna say the final boss of a JRPG, but that's literally God in most of those. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Maybe it's not bigger than that, but it's you know, it's bigger than beating Kefka at the end of yeah. Final Fantasy Six or something like that. This is a a force of the universe that like, okay, you had your little victory here, but uh you you're not actually gonna kill this thing you know yeah so it's bigger than uh it's bigger than beating zeromis i assume yeah (laughs) i'll never find out yeah so yeah that is uh it's a cool ending um yeah i i thought the the darkest dungeon is half cool like i i enjoyed yeah first i enjoyed the first level and i thought the second level has a cool uh idea to it and I got through on a bug, um, yeah. which I don't feel bad about. You know, no, I don't feel bad about. I, che- don't... I don't. I don't feel bad about cheesing Dark Souls bosses or anything like that. So no, especially um, for this, where I, I just don't. I don't know. It, it kind of feels like again. I'm glad that they have this. It's much better than if it wasn't there. It's much better than if like the end game was just you beat. You know the sunken crew for the last time and it goes that was your last level three boss the hamlet is rests like yeah it's much better that it's there but maybe they could have done it a little different i think if if the i would i would yeah i was just i'm oh, sorry i keep uh <laughs> i keep in there i was i was just gonna say i i think maybe if they all felt like the first and the fourth one, if the second and third one felt more like the first and the fourth one, that might've been better. Yeah. So yeah, like the first one was a, it, it felt like a proper end game dungeon challenge. Uh, the second one has that gimmick, which is really hard. Um, I, I think the gimmick is fine. The third one I think sucks. It's just, it's just too long. Like yeah. I get, they're trying to, they're trying to give you this like grueling, uh, you know, battle the attrition of going through this, uh, this four campfire dungeon, but it's just too long. The fact that the enemies can teleport you, I think is too much. Maybe if they didn't have that, it would have been okay to like map it out yourself. And um, yeah, that's the thing that feels like the straw, the real straw on the, the camel's back where you're like, it was just big. And they gave you four fires. You could kind of be like, well, that's kind of cool. Like, that's kind of like, cool that I'm going to get four fires. Because it's like, it's big, and you also have basically three boss fights in there. Yeah. So, like, you have the attrition of going through this, you know, going, pushing through the dark against all these enemies. Then you have these three boss fights, and you can get close to one of those rooms with the, uh, the thing you have to, you know, you have to do the thing. Um, and then you get teleported away, and you're like, well, fuck, that it's going to take me 20 minutes to get to the next one. Uh, I just don't think that's very good. And then yeah, yeah. mission four, um, 
the spectacle, the final boss, mission four is cool. And then yeah. picking the two heroes that you have to sacrifice at the end uh, was cool. Um, yeah, I sacrificed the Vestal and the Plague Doctor, so I was left with Raynaud and Dismas. Did you name your characters or did you keep the stock names? No, I think I kept all the stock names. I'm the kind of person... Um who pretty much always keeps the stock names. Or if I have Civilization, I always just wanted it to be the city names. Playing um, Pokemon, never gave my Pokemon nicknames. Yeah. That's just nice. I started to, give, uh, started to give Pokemon nicknames now as an adult because I need something to make Pokemon more interesting and engaging. Like, I, I really yeah. love Pokemon, but, you know, throughout my life, I've played through a Pokemon game at least 40 times, you know, so I need something new. Like, uh, so I do give names to those. If I ever replay darkest dungeon, I'll for sure put, uh, people's names on there and that'll help. Um, I'm sure that'll help me give some, like, you know, instead of saying like, ah, Dismas, stop being a dick, stop insulting, uh, this person. I'll be, it'll be like, you know, my brother's name. I'll be like, how could you, how could you do that, Paul? You know? So, yeah. Uh, that could be cool, but my friends yeah, live inside I, the game. I'm not actually sure if I'll replay Darkest Dungeon just because I don't know if I have another 60 plus hour thing in me. I'll play Darkest Dungeon two though for sure. Yeah, I, as soon I as am it's curious. out of early access. Yeah, when it, whenever it comes to Switch, I'll definitely yeah. pick that up just because I'm very curious. Part of me is like that's the perfect way to do it, and part of me is like, but I just. I don't know if I'm going to like it as much. I mean, obviously I'll, I'll see, but part, I mean, and you know, and I don't know how it's structured. Maybe it will still have kind of an end game it leads up to. Um, like I could see them doing that. Like if it's this cycle, you know, especially if it turns out that it's like diegetic, the cycle is like diegetic, right? If it is like, Oh yeah. Then maybe you break the cycle and there's a different end game. Like, I could see that being something really satisfying. If it's just like, oh, you're going to keep doing it, and then a Kate, and then after one of the runs, there's, you know, you do the thing where, like, you meet certain conditions, and there's a super bot. I don't know. I, I mean, yeah. I'll, whenever it's something like that, I like it while I'm playing it, and then later I'm like, nah. I don't know. But we'll see. We already went over a lot of yeah. that, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I, I really like the, like, working toward the end goal of going into the darkest dungeon yeah, exactly when you're fully prepared for it in this game the more like shorter run based thing gets into an area of like roguelikes that i actually don't like a whole lot so but i do trust this studio to make good combat and uh interesting story stuff so uh, i'll definitely play it as soon as it drops on probably switch but yeah uh, i i Definitely when I heard that they were changing from this like long campaign into like a three to five hour campaign thing, I was like, ooh, that's less of what I like about video games, you know, just so cautious about Darkest Dungeon 2 and what I hear. But... I know. Well, we'll have to see. I haven't listened to Gary's, um, the podcast he released uh, about his thoughts on it. I don't know if I want to. I Part yeah. of me is like, I kind of want to just when it comes out just give it a try because i got you know what it's probably going to be at the most 30 bucks 30 30 bucks yeah i'll i'll buy it on switch you know so yeah 
anyway, one more time, dude, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank um, you for having this me. This has been a been a fun conversation about a, a game that both of us have a lot to say about. And I hope, you know, if anyone did listen to the end of the spoiler section without playing the game, I hope you do still consider playing it because it's it's really, really good. But uh but yeah. Yeah, and you honestly like I don't know, you didn't miss that much. You know, I mean you didn't you're you're fine. You can still play. Yeah. It. Yeah, for sure. So um we will say goodbye for this episode of Tales from the Backlog one more time. Um, ratings, reviews, subscribing, telling people about it, and uh, uh, when they try to get on their bike and ride away from you because you told them to listen to a new podcast, throw something in the wheels um, and uh, slow them down. Use your bola. Your bolas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why you should always carry a bola. Yeah. So, one more time. Uh Shout out to the House of House and TV Nopes podcast. Andrew, thanks for coming on, dude. Yes, thanks for having me. See you later.